Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong. The gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense. Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I don't know Alfred, so no, you forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy also jokes here pretty much maybe last time. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Anyway, welcome, welcome to Hey Kids Comics. A little insight into the fact that Michael and I would like to be creative yeah. in the pre-credit sequence, but alas, he's stuck at school and I'm going to work for a living, mm-hmm. which sucks. You know, my school are trying to send me to New York, to are the Cuba School of Art. I've are they going to pay for you? No, I've told them all about it and they're all, all right. Can I go with you? Oh, I was listening to uh, Views from the Longbox recently. Yes. And he had on a gentleman, mm-hmm. I believe his name was Robert J. Kelly, who has attended the Joe Kubert School. Oh, yeah. I've considered Facebook messaging uh, and just asking him, look, what's involved and all of that stuff, because mm. that's where you would like to go in a world where your dad is phenomenally wealthy, <laughs> which ain't this one, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm Andrew Leyland still, and have always been, and thus will ever be. And I'm Michael Leyland, and I too was listening to an episode of Views from the Long Box. Well, yeah. I was. You've listened to a podcast. Well, I was part of it. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, yeah, Michael's been in an episode of Because as a recorder of this, I've actually done it now. Yeah, and we, and we don't know when that's going up. No, we don't. So the contracts were all signed in blood, were they? Yeah. The whores did the, the work, did yeah, they? Yeah, the, they did. The, 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 the well, edge actually. Did they? <laughs> Michael, Michael told me he had fun. <laughs> so yeah, great. So Michael, my Michael, yeah. has teamed up with Michael barely, and together the two Michaels mm-hmm. have created a podcast. We have. It was great fun. Was it mm-hmm. good? Well, I look forward to I'd listening. Do it again to it. if we could agree on something else. <laughs> you should do. Oh, he's done an All Star Superman show. Yeah. I was just saying you could have done All Star Superman with him as part of 75th anniversary. Well, it's Batman 75th next year. Oh, I'm sure we'll do some Batman stuff. Morrison's Batman. Is that what you want to do for the birthday? Just his entire Batman? We don't have to... Well, the entire of it, yeah, but we don't have to do the entire happy birthday. And every, every, every week... Every I week. Just pick my, I just pick one comic that's nothing yeah. to do with Morrison's Batman. And I, we pick out a storyline. So I get... So every week I get, like, I'll have Dreadful Birthday Day Joker this week, and you're doing four issues of that. Well, you could do your four issues, and then we look at a story arc from the Morrison stuff. God, no, these super ones ended up being long enough, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm lovely listener. I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this. For this is the last episode of Hey Kids Comics ever. Happy birthday, <laughs> Superman! It broke me. No, I'm kidding. But it is the last episode of um, Happy Birthday, Superman. I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. I think you have as well, for the most part. Um, the early stuff, I think, was interesting. Did you not enjoy what we're doing tonight? I did, but I preferred the early stuff. All right, the okay. Golden Age stuff and Bronze Age was... Fair uh, But it has broke me. Yeah. I'll be honest. Um, I've already done the notes. You keep going, though. I know. I've already done the notes for what we're doing next week, and it was such a joy to just pick four comics and just write about those four comics mm-hmm. and not do right. The first appearance of Green Crypt tonight was... When, when was that? And, ooh, that's interesting. When did that story take place? And not have to do any of that. Mm. So I think you're going to have a couple of weeks 
of us just doing comics that are not in depth. We want to do Civil War. Well, somebody has, I want to has talked about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm down <laughs> with doing it. I thought about should we do Jeff Loeb and Tim Sales stuff? Hulk Grey, Daredevil Yellow, Spider Man Blue. Yeah. Well, that may be fun. Because you could probably do them in a show. Because let's be honest, Jeff Loeb stuff isn't exactly. doesn't take a long time to read, does it? Depends what. Yeah. He can't decide whether he wants to be dense or not. Hmm. Anyway, they're, they're, we're, we're talking on the air about future plans. We are. Um, we may do a Brian K. Vaughan show. We might. We've, we've not decided yet. Who knows? Who knows where the muse will take us? Because we don't. No, not a clue. Uh, so, um, oh, one thing before we do get going. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of people have asked frequently that... Um, how do you go about... Please stop recording. Please stop. <laughs> Ooh, it's very good. My wife is playing Lego Batman. Two. Lego Batman two. In three D. In three D. Despite the fact that she can't actually watch three D. Lego's cooler. The Lego is cool. Yes. Superman's cool. Superman's bright. You know, there's voice acting in it. Voice acting in a Lego yeah. game is heresy. It's it's all. What's that, isn't it? There's voices in this one, and um, the Lord of the Rings one, but there's none in Pirates like Caribbean. Oh, so there's dialogue? Yeah. In like, oh, right. It's just taken from the film, I think. Alright. Oh, right. Anyway. Just bye. Right, okay. I do want to see Superman. I appreciated that, but I only saw the Joker. So did I. So, anyway, that, enough of that. What was I just saying? Oh, yeah. A Some people, people a lot of people have asked frequently, um, frequently to get off the air. To, to get off the air, yeah. But after that, after, yes. they said. Go that, bald. No, that, that's too late. <laughs> but uh, before that. <laughs> They say that, you know, sometimes you'll want to do something. We've said before, sometimes we want to do something, another show's done it, we knock that on the head. Yeah. Because another show's already done it. Um, last week, I mentioned that the lovely J. David Weeter, hi David, who is the conduit through which Darkseid communicates with this dimension, mm-hmm. uh, had done an episode of Superman Forever Radio about what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way. Which we did last week. We did. I also mentioned last week that I had not listened to that show for obvious reasons. Yes. That episode is now recorded. And as you hear this, that episode has gone live. Yes. I'm looking forward to the reactions to it. <laughs> Why? In a way. Because it's a highly lauded, well respected oh, right. story that we both thought was cack. But anyway. A lot of emails saying, oh, you're, you're wrong. I've been wrong before. I'm not really that. I person. haven't yet, actually. <laughs> of course, because you're a teenager. <laughs> you're right all the time, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, J. David Weeter, Conduit to Darkseid, yes. did Superman Forever Radio. And if you want to hear two shows doing exactly the same comic book, mm-hmm. but having two diametrically opposed opinions on said comic book... Did he like it? He liked the comic and didn't like the film. I like the film and didn't like the comic then you need to get yourself over to Superman Forever Radio and download that episode and this is why I have come to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter if you do something that somebody else is doing because what you're doing with it will be completely different to what they're doing and I have thought we should get together as a group our little podcasting chums the the Demanzo Corps yeah the Demanzo Corps employees and friends or whatever and we should pick something Mm -hmm. to all of us cover the same week including the janitor Yes, we'll bring the janitor in. Yes. And to see exactly whether we all do come up with a completely different viewpoint. What we do it as like one big show. No, no, no. 
We right. do it as our regular shows. Our own separate entities. Yeah, our own separate entities, released at separate times, but all of us would cover the same comic. Alright. Just to see if my theory is correct. We should, actually. Let's get in touch with the rest of these guys. Yeah, and say, look, what do you want to do? We'll yeah. all do it. And see what would happen. And see if my theory is correct that just because we're covering the same material, mm-hmm. it really wouldn't matter. But anyway, so get ye to J. David Weeter and listen to his uh, interpretation of what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way because it was completely different to ours. And for that reason alone, well worth listening to. So if you didn't agree with us, you may agree with David. Unless you don't agree with either of us. Unless you don't agree with either of us. In that case, yes. you've just been awkward. Yes. We've waffled far too long tonight, so let's get some Over. emails. Yeah. So Rob Stubbs emailed Superman Through the Ages Part 4. Rob has... Re- it's, an e- it's an email section tonight of returning visitors. Yeah. And we like that. Yeah! To you, my British friends, Andrew, Andy Luke, Leyland, and Michael, Mikey Bo Leyland, and the others in the Duke Leyland clan. I quite like the idea of changing our name to be Duke hyphen Leyland. Yeah. I, I love that idea. Mikey Duke Leyland. Yeah. And we drive around in our car, the Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> and it plays, and it plays, da, 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 whenever we press the arm. <laughs> Seven different kinds of wonderful. <laughs> you just imagine approaching a lollipop lady, honking your horn, and it going. <laughs> People would just mock, yep. mock you mercilessly. Buying petrol with rations. <laughs> uh, that's the legend of how Michael and Andrew got themselves the Winston Churchill. Just another day in Hazard County. Anyway, Rob's email continues. This is not the first time I have done a proper yeah for someone living in the UK. As at one point, I was a frequent internet caller to a paranormal internet radio show based out of the Isle of Wight. Oh, cool. <laughs> Did he sell his yeehaws? Yeah, he could have made a, a decent wedge out of that. Mm-hmm. Especially if they just kept playing them. Or, or especially if you, you just rounce people and yeehawed them and then <laughs> ask them. <laughs> run up to some yeah. them. That would be awesome, yes. They recorded me doing it and used it quite frequently. I hope they paid you <laughs> in the show before it all faded away. Hey, Michael Bailey, I love your long emails and your Superman knowledge and your many podcasts that are too numerous to listen. I've listened to a lot of them. Hello, J. David Weeter. Hello, Darkseid. Hello, the quantum state of wimpy, not wimpy Superman. I don't mind the new Superman costume, especially the people who are complaining about it from the perspective of Superman has never worn armour before. They should realise that the Silver Age costume was made of indestructible material, making it armour, which saved Superman several times when he was powerless. At least Superman isn't taking costume advice from either Scott Summers or Emma Frost, which, if you keep that in mind, makes the costume pretty awesome. <laughs> if Superman had the red pointy crotch. Yeah, yeah, so Superman doesn't have a red pointy crotch, and nor does he look like he's been squeezed into something. That he doesn't quite fit. So, bonus points for that. Yes. And I, uh, the collar has quite grown on me. I did actually. To be honest with you. Is it finally grown no, on No, the costume hasn't. Right. Well, okay. the collar has. <laughs> the collar is the least egregious version of the costume now. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Paul Spataro. Is Rob just listing everyone yeah. who emailed into the He's show? He's actually not talking to us. No, you're going to rat's ass about us. I have mixed feelings about the 70s, as this is when I started reading comics for the first time, but due to my being able to read the issues from the past in my later years, this has washed those memories away, making any of my feelings questionable. I like aspects of the changes that were made, such as making Clark Kent a television anchorman and getting rid of Green Kryptonite, which had reproduced much like Tribble's 
I'm not sure how using kryptonite as an energy source would work, since wouldn't beaming it all around the world actually make the whole planet a big kryptonite death trap? Sure, I didn't think about that. Mm. Possibly. Don't bring your logic here. <laughs> yeah. Clones replaced evil twins and amnesia are the explanation of choice for improbabilities in stories. Andrew, I can explain why Lois Lane wasn't picked, as it's the 70s, so of course Morgan Edge would want a man as the lead anchorman for the television show. Morgan Edge is clearly channeling Reed Richards' paranoia of fear of the thing. A fantastic ass plug. Well done. But using Superman instead. I like Superman thinking, but I've always thought, he has thought, I don't like to repeat myself. Crook catching can get dull if you do the same things over and over. I didn't really like the bit where Superman is dismissive of the professor's device calling it gimmicky. The backup story was okay. Do you, do you guys find the idea that your career will be decided by some sort of high-tech machine a little bit creepy, where you can't appeal the decisions? Well, Michael, our machine has decided your future career is a sanitation engineer, so enjoy the smelly pipes and alien creatures. But I don't want to be a plumber. Hey, plumbers get paid a lot of money. Well, yeah. The second issue is interesting, and it takes the idea that the costume gives him his powers and makes it literally true. OMG, Killer Bee is attacking Metropolis that Superman has to deal with, and now he has crooks to fight. Was it my imagination, but was Superman snarky and a touch vicious when he dumped them off? No, he was. Mm. But I think it was justified, because it interrupted him from doing what he was doing. To pick up these dumb... Taming the bees. Yeah, taming the bees, which is fair enough. Their alien agent moving next door to Clark Kent could have happened at any point along the way, so that's easily explained away. Clark Kent interacting with his neighbours is fun, as it makes him more real instead of just a mask that Superman wears. The third book, where the female president is named Weena, makes me laugh. (laughs) To answer Michael's questions, helicopters crash together even today with all the technology we have. I don't think they intentionally tried to zap Kal-El with the laser, but he propped the hatch open when they were trying to slice open the rocket ship. No, I got that the laser just happened to hit him in the face as he popped the canopy, but my way was funnier. (laughs) And we always go for the funny. We do. I'm not saying we succeed. Don't bring your logic in. Yes. I'm not saying we always make it funny, but we try. I have a question. Since the Americans now have a rocket ship with what I would assume is advanced technology, why is the United States more technologically advanced than other countries in later years? Who's going to tell Skyboy what to do and what kind of punishment can you dish out to him if you want him to behave? Letting him roam around the base freely increases his trust, which makes it easier to get him to behave. Was there a moment where you heard the Mortal Kombat music? Let Mortal Kombat begin! When the four-armed super being appeared. (laughs) That's actually quite a good point. Yeah. Goro versus Skyboy. Yeah, that'd work. The fourth book was great with a happy ending, finally. I wonder if he gave Jimmy that car since he's clear he gave Lois Lane that pearl necklace he's been building for years. The wizard clearly took up magic when he learned from those monks who forged Dr. Doom's amnesia armour then got amnesia, fell through a portal into the past, then became a Justice Society villain with vague memories of a guy wielding glue as a weapon. Colonel Future was a nod to Edmund Hamilton, who wrote Superman and a science fiction series called Captain Future. Oh, I didn't know that. Captain Future has three people, a robot, a synthetic android, and a guy who was a brain in a jar who aided him in his missions. I am now worried that you, Andrew, have plotted out what you would do if you had magic powers, including putting your stolen loot into a bank account from the bank you stole it from. I have spent many, many, many years plotting what I would do if I had superpowers mm. and very few of them involve being <laughs> altruistic but that's because Superman's better than I am your last story was the best as Pete Ross goes through all the reasons he safeguarded Clark Kent's other identity in tearing down the Kent home to build an interstellar freeway using Ross and Vogan construction ink <laughs> oh, I never realised they wrote such bloody awful poetry The story expands Clark Kent, making him more than just a mask Superman was, showing how much he loved his adopted parents and the sole reason he hasn't got rid of the house was to remember them. Until next time, I'm actually sick of finishing this message, so admire my dedication. R.L. Stubbs, Irish tea cat. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rob Alloy the Fourth, Galahad Dulac, Paladin of Light. And it's, he's got his Latin thing that I can never pronounce. Verimes non vestry. That's the bunny. Something. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. We have another email from Rob already, but that will wait till next time. Mm-hmm. Next up, it's Christopher Keith. Told you it was an email of returning people. Yeah. Happy birthday, Superman 2 slash 3. Hello, mighty Leylands. Is that like the mighty Quinn? Kind of. Come oh, on. The mighty Come on within. We ain't got nothing but the mighty Thor. I didn't really scan that, did I? No, but it's pretty cool if you have a mighty Thor. A mighty Thor, yes. Is that just not what a guy who has a lisp is when he gets off a horse? Uh, we've interrupted Chris's email we're getting good at this I opted to combine an email about episodes 2 and 3 for the sake of brevity translation I couldn't fake work as well as usual this week I am thoroughly enjoying the birthday segments even more than I thought I would whilst these books are as you have stated quite silly the commentary is fun a few points that I've noticed and wanted to mention the cape pouch so I can believe that a man can fly I can believe he can freeze a lake and lift it, despite the fact that the weight of said lake would not support lifting. I can believe in heat vision, freeze breath, and hell, even super ventriloquism. So stupid. But the cape pouch? At least Barry Allen's flash costume was made of Reed Richards-y unstable molecules that allowed it to fit in his ring, and when you think about it, the FF did not premiere for another six more years, so the flash invented unstable molecules. No matter how hard you try to justify it, though, Clark is wearing a wool suit. Someone would notice if it wasn't a wool suit. You ever see a guy wearing a polyester suit from across the street? Polyester suit. From a cab down the street? Polyester suit. From space? Polyester suit. So Superman is able to fold an adult-sized wool business suit and dress shirt into a cape pocket, and it doesn't look like his cape is wearing an adult diaper. I say thee nay. Just have him store the suit in the closet or web it up on the roof. Oops. The father didn't just try and dismiss it as Silver Age goofiness when they brought it up in the 1780s and actually tried to incorporate it as if it made sense. Crazy talk. Um, see, yes, on the one hand, the cape pouch is dumb. But on the other, where, el- where does he put his Clark Kent outfit? He doesn't just leave it where he gets changed, like Peter Parker has been known to do. And he can't web it up in a web pouch, as Peter Parker has been known to do. And there is that thing that in recent years, Batman doesn't take his costume out with him when he's Bruce Wayne, does he? Mm-hmm. He comes back to the cave and he goes out at night as Batman. So he never has his Bruce Wayne clothes with him. A suitcase. So Superman would carry a suitcase around with him. Oh, wait, I'm thinking of Clark Kent. Clark Kent could carry a suitcase around with him, but where would Clark Kent put his Clark Kent clothes when he's Superman? In a suitcase. Yeah, and, and leave it in his office or something. throw it at a building. <laughs> and then... And it'd go through a convenient window. Well, no, 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 because he'd use his ice breath right. to stick it to a wall. All right, that's plausible. And depending on how much ice, it's how long it'll last... Fair enough. And then, he doesn't have to wait uh, wait. Because he can always get it back by just unfreezing it with his heat vision. Exactly. Unlike Spider-Man, who has to uh, wait wait for his... Mm. All right, no prize. Number two, Chris's mail continues. Supergirl's first appearance. Okay, I'm not an orphan, and I can't speak for those that are orphans, but what the hell? She just gets to Earth whole, family's dead, save her cousin, that she last saw when he was a little baby, and the a-hole sends her to an orphanage? Because, you know, she doesn't have any reaction to the trauma of losing her whole way of life. Superman goes on and on about Krypton, despite the fact that he doesn't remember it at all. But this girl actually grew up on Krypton. Let her live at the fortress, you selfish... Nice man. Oh, Bruce Wayne likes to help orphans. Let her live at Wayne Manor and have a butler. Not an orphanage where she has to clean up her room to even make it livable. See, in retrospect, it would have been great to have her live with Superman. Mm. Like 
Bruce Wayne adopted Dick Grayson. I think that would have been cool. I wonder why they didn't do that. Because it doesn't have to interfere with the stories. And you could always have that sitcom ending. Yeah, you could always have a sitcom ending when he comes up. Because somebody did point out, well, Clark's an orphan himself, so how can he have a relative? Mm. And it's like, well, it, it would have just been the cousin of Martha, yeah. wouldn't it? They would have just passed it off as it was Martha's second cousin and her family's dead. There's a way around that. And I think high comedy hijinks would ensue. Could have ensued from having Supergirl live with him, but no. <laughs> Number three, Death of Superman. Well, I love this story as a kid. I have to say it seems incredibly silly now. Superman comes off as, well, dopey. He trusts Luther? Ever? I don't care if Luther was 70 years old, had cured cancer, discovered the warp drive, and found a way to grow crops in the Sahara. You always keep your eyes on him and never trust him. After he dies, you can feel bad for the never really trusting the guy. But this Superman goes along with trusting him. Ridiculous. I'll get more to Luther's motivation in a second. But for all those people who deride Superman as being all muscle and no brains, these stories just provide ammunition. By the way, if I was Superman and I ever even saw the colour green, I'm flying to Cleveland immediately at light speed, scanning back to where I was previously with my X-ray vision to make sure everything's okay, and then, if okay, go back to where I started. Everyone can just question the gust of wind. I'm still alive. Kryptonite doesn't work instantaneously, and even if it was quickly reacting, he can recover while in Cleveland. Maybe check out Michael Simmons' restaurant while he's there. I hear that it's good. Why Lex Luthor's trounce in the city? So you yeah. having a meal. Number four, why isn't Luther vain? He probably thinks this song is about him. Seriously, why isn't he vain? Okay, Luther's apparent sole reason for becoming a supervillain is to get revenge on Superman for being bald. Then why would he do anything else, i.e. robbery, taking over the world, etc.? Also, if it's because he lost his hair, you would think that he has more like the Victor Von Doom. Post-crisis, Luther was arrogant as hell, and that was when he was fat as the kingpin. He was certainly vain post-crisis. Pre-crisis, that vanity doesn't seem to be a character trait at all. No mirror shots of him agonising about his appearance, dressed in a lot of prison greys and purple. Pretty boring for a guy hung upon his appearance, to the point that he would abandon any plans of helping humanity because he was now bald. You'd think he would at least hang on to some form of vanity, a crown or cape. Refer to himself in the third person at least once or twice. Luther bots. Hatman at least had a collection of wigs. Okay, and Spacey too. Lastly, the Batman voice you guys use. Are you guys referencing Christopher Bale? Who's Christopher Bale? <laughs> Christian Bale, or howitshouldhaveended.com, Batman. Every time I hear it, it sounds like the Batman on that website sitting at the cafe with Superman, so I had to ask. Um, no, it's just generic, raspy yeah. Batman voice, because... Well, uh, when you find a gadget that lets you fly around the Earth so fast you go back in time, give me a call. <laughs> because neither of us can do Kevin Conroy who is the definitive Batman, and if I do Christian Vale's voice too much, mm-hmm. uh, my throat starts hurting. So it's just generic Batman voice. Sorry, me. Yeah. And, um... Where's the dead That's for Christopher Warren, who'd had enough of them the first time round we did the Hi, Chris. <laughs> we bring them back every now, just when you think it's safe to go back into the water. Don't mm. <laughs> rises, Batman. <laughs> Dark Knight Rises Batman who can have his back cured by just having somebody do pressure on it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I like Batman Begins a great deal. I like two-thirds of the Dark Knight. Mm. Dark Knight Rises was a very disappointing finale. I need, to, I do need to watch all three of them back-to-back because back, your mum's still not seen Dark Knight still Rises. still like it. I know, I'm willing to give it a chance now that you've got the whole, they're all out now. Let's see mm. what they like as a, as a trilogy. Crap. I probably still won't like the third one. What's wrong with Batman Begins? I can't remember about much uh, about You enjoyed Batman, Batman Begins, as, as did I. I enjoyed lots of things when I was younger. I've changed my mind on it now. Yeah, you're a teenager now, so you don't like anything. 
Okay, enough for one long-winded email, continues Chris. Or concludes Chris, I suppose. I eagerly look forward to the 70s. No, I don't. But yet again, I will listen, because despite the subject matter, you make it enjoyable. Oh, thank you very much. We do appreciate that. I enjoy the presentation. You've now just enjoyed the book. Thank you, Chris Keith. Well, you're very welcome, Chris. We're glad you're enjoying them. Our next email is from somebody who has not been in touch for some considerable amount of time. Which has greatly upset us. Which has greatly upset us, for we have missed him. Mm-hmm. But he is a returning emailer this night. Some say... <laughs> Some say he has constructed his own house using only cotton buds, or Q-tips as they are in America, and thatch. Some say he drives a car that works on pure petroleum jelly. All we know is he's called Lou Giaconetti. And on that bombshell, would Americans know what we're Do they get Top Gear in it? They do get Top Gear in America, but they don't get it with our hosts. They get it with three other dudes. Do they still do that, though? I don't know. It was on BBC Three for a bit, so maybe they still do it. Yes, that was a Top Gear reference if you're not British. Yes. Anyway, uh, have you heard the one about Superman? Because I have! Is the subject heading. It's lovely having Luke back, isn't it? I miss Luke. I said, by the way, baby, what's your name? She said I go by the name of Lois Lane, and you could be my boyfriend, you surely can. Just let me quit my boyfriend called Superman. I said he's a furry, I do suppose, flying through the air in pantyhose. He may be very sexy or even cute, but he looks like a sucker in a blue and red suit. Following this rap, a member of the Sugar Hill Gang was mysteriously thrown into the sun. <laughs> the Metropolis Police are baffled as to who could have done such a feat. Um, Spider-Man. He was blue and red. Sometimes. <laughs> Listening to the first episode of Happy Birthday Superman. Now this is the well-oiled ultra-professional, completely and entirely not off-the-cuff introduction, which I expect from a podcast of this calibre. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think we've just been insulted. I know we've been insulted. <laughs> off to a great start by us, lols. Do you know, I don't remember what the introduction of the first episode was. I think it was um, very ultra-professional, well-oiled, completely and entirely not I'm going. pretty sure it was all of those things and more. Yes. Yes. Uh, by the chaos god of industry, Hashot, it feels good to be listening to Hey Kids comics once again. Well, by the great Vishanti, it's good to have you listening to us again. And it's nice that you're back in the email emailing fraternity. Yes. As far as the Doom Patrol... What? The Keith Giffen iteration is well worth reading. Much more accessible than the Morrison stuff and actually addresses the idea of why do you keep bringing back this dead horse in character? And he writes an absolutely hilarious negative man. And the new 52 style robot man who showed up in my greatest adventure was a lot of fun as well. Did we talk about Doom Patrol? I think, yeah. Did we? And you called it a dead horse. Ah, oh, right, yeah. Back. Right, yeah. Ah, that, that explains a great deal, it doesn't does it? it? It was eight weeks ago, Luke! I barely remember what I had for tea. I'm one of those guys who always leaned more towards Superman than Batman, so I'm excited to hear all of your coverage of seven decades of The Man of Steel. I've only read a handful of these Golden Age stories, mostly in the collection entitled The Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told. This is not to be confused with the later, smaller volume, Superman The Greatest Stories Ever Told. Not sure why DC can't pick better names, but you get my meaning. The lead story from Superman 1, including Superman beating the tower out of the wife beater, is in the volume, and you can see how this strip caught on. It's exciting, colourful and fun. What kid wouldn't want to read about this outer space man who wears this bright costume and does all this crazy stuff? No wonder this helped kickstart the entire superhero genre. Unless you're in action comics number one, then you want to be a bad guy who steals women and beats up poor people. I'd go with that. 
Golden Age heroes not caring about the lore is absolutely glorious. My extensive reading of Golden Age Hawkman, who was over in Flash Comics, has exposed me to this wonderfully callous disregard for personal liberty and the rule of law. Never mind the pile of bodies they tend to leave in their wake. If you've ever wondered why there are not many Golden Age bad guys in modern comics, now you know why. And of course, threatening and otherwise humiliating women? Gotta love it. The Blakely Mindster is really amusing to me because I'm working on an active industrial construction site and I've been since August, so safety is always forefront in my mind lately. Just funny to see that in a comic from 70 years ago. Regarding Michael Bailey's expositional news network in this story, it's more of an earlier version, one which I dubbed long ago WPSR, Plot Point Specific Radio. You may recognise it from pretty much any Warner Brothers gangster movies from the 1930s and 40s. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing more about Superman through the ages. Keep up the good work, boys. Luke. P.S. Not particularly sure how I feel about Amazing Spider-Man 700, nor the fallout from it, but I may be super predictable once again. I am super excited that Amazing Spider-Man 699.1 is the springboard for Morbius to have his own book again. Because, as Andy and I have discussed off-air, Morbius is one of the Spider-Family anti-heroes, which we can agree on. Go forth, living vampire! Go forth and do living vampire things, like going into a blind rage, drinking someone's blood, and then feeling bad about it! <laughs> also, I loved Andy and Michael's back and forth about status quo that was almost verbatim taken from Monty Python's argument sketch. <laughs> you know, I hadn't considered that, but he's right. Okay, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, and our final email tonight. Is from Mr. Michael Bailey. It's another returning emailer. Mm-hmm. That's what we like to see. Along with new people. Yes. Listen up, new people. Email in. I know you're out there. <laughs> I can see you. Because these, the, all the podcasts are embedded yeah. with a tracing signal. So that they don't know that I can see them when they're listening. Mm-hmm. I wave at them. Greetings to the Leylands. Greetings to the Baileys. Time to play catch up. Hopefully this won't go on too long, but I think we both know that's a dirty lie. <laughs> This is an email about two weeks in the making, as I started this on my very unhappy birthday. No, that's the Smith song. My very happy unbirthday. That's more like it. And I'm only now getting to the point where I can wrap things up. Such is the life of a jet set playboy. At least I imagine it is. The day I find the meat one, I guess I'll find out. To begin, part four. Superman Breaks Loose is another one of those pivotal Superman series for me, as it was reprinted in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, and thus I read it a thousand times as a kid. It's odd that I hear this episode the day after the guy that runs the comic shop I call home found me a very nice, not near mint, but in damn good shape for being 40-year-old book to replace the one that I had that had started to fall apart. This is an amazing story and has some of the best Swanderson art of the era. The one thing that always struck me as odd about the story is that the copy on the splash page hints at the fact that we're going to see a darker side to Superman, and that doesn't happen. Despite this, I love the way this one plays out. I'm glad to have it in colour, because it really makes the art come alive on the page. Thanks for mentioning that awesome two-page ad towards the end of the issue, as it is one of my favourite Superman house ads ever. Also, I agree with Andy, always words I like to say in a sentence, that while the fabulous world of Krypton stories are nice, I prefer the private life of Clark Kent. I slightly disagree that all Krypton is good for us for blowing up, (laughs) but I see Andy's point. I didn't say that's all it was good for. Krypton. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Boom. (laughs) Krypton. Whoa, whoa. What is it good for? Nothing but blowing up. Boom. That would so be a top ten hit, wouldn't it? (laughs) It would. (laughs) I merely said. 
And maybe a little, a lot of our <laughs> I think I merely said that I don't care about Krypton. And as, Just as, as long as it blows up. I was concerned it was there to blow up. It is, though, really. It's going to blow up. Well, well, Michael himself has made the point. It's like the Waynes. The Waynes are there to get shot. <laughs> that's the purpose of the Waynes. It's sad. <laughs> I think we're his exact words. But that's the point of them. And it's one of those things that I don't care about stories about Thomas and Martha Wayne. They're there to die so Bruce can become Batman. It's like it's like caring about the spider that bites Peter Parker. <laughs> that had a life, right? <laughs> and a family, and everything. And it's it's just one of those things to me. I don't. I'm not taken away from the wonderful world of Krypton backups, which I did read and frequently enjoyed. And I'm not taken away from the people that do enjoy them. But just for me, but they're based on a planet that's going to inevitably yeah. blow up. It's Krypton. To me, you learn about Krypton through Superman, mm-hmm. and that's fine. And stories where he went back in time and got to spend some time on Krypton I quite liked because they were always quite sad because you knew he was like Sam Beckett yeah. no, water, no matter what he did he wasn't going to be able to stop it from blowing up although Sam Beckett changed history all the time so that, that, that <laughs> analogy out the window like Marty McFly no he changed history as well didn't he so all those time travel TV shows lied to us it's perfectly yeah. possible to go back in time and change history well not even that they're all hypocrites that's true don't change history it changes history <laughs> Anyway, um, Michael continues, oh, one more thing, Andy mentioned that he rather liked the hardcover edition of this story that came out a few years back. He also mentioned that some people didn't like it because of how it looked. I am one of those people. I get what they were trying, but this could just be my copy. The pages don't look weathered, but instead look washed out. Maybe the effect was different over the course of the print run, but I have to admit that I was a bit disappointed in that, and, and I'm glad I paid half price for it. I'm still glad it's out there and that I have a copy, but I wish it looked a tad nicer. Well, I didn't pay full price for mine, but I don't pay full price for anything. <laughs> you don't. I absolutely love, Michael continues, who took the super out of Superman. Actually, I love that entire storyline. It was very ambitious for 1976 and did a fantastic job of exploring what made the Superman of this era tick. My favourite chapter is the Clark Kemp one. That is mostly due to the fact that during the chapter, Clark punches Steve Lombard in the face. We don't see it, which actually makes it even more awesome and kind of funny. Actually, I like that chapter because it plays into the Clark of this era a lot more assertively and shows that while he may not be a Superman, wink towards the camera, he is a very vital character and an important piece to the mythos. I almost wish I'd started an issue later because I think the finale to this story arc would have been great in the 300th issue. Speaking of the 300th issue, this is one of those rare moments where I will agree completely with something Andy said, another collection of words I always like seeing in a sentence, that was me, not my yeah. And ultimately still not like the overall story. Superman 300 is my least favourite anniversary issue of The Man of Steel. I appreciate what the creators were trying to do. They wanted to update the origin of Superman for 1976, and you would think that a story that begins on my literal date of birth, February 29th, 1976, would speak to me on a deep and meaningful level. The thing is, I hate the idea of the government finding the rocket ship and raising cult young Kal-El. It's a worthy idea to explore, make no mistake, and I would go on to enjoy JMS playing with the idea and his reimagining of Squadron Supreme, but for me, if it's Superman, he needs to be raised by the Kents. Some might accuse me of being a purist in this regard, and I respectively, in most cases, disagree. I'm a traditionalist. I can accept and like other takes on the Superman legend, but at the end of the day, there are certain elements that I believe are essential to making Superman, well, Superman. Jonathan Martha are two of those elements. For me, he really needs them to become the Man of Steel. I'm not saying that those deviate from this idea are wrong, because this story is a fun way to celebrate 300 issues. It just never sat well with me. See, I liked that about Superman 300. I liked that it didn't have any of the traditional elements of the Superman legend, like um, the Kents and the Daily Planet and all that. There's the argument then, if Jonathan and Martha's role in Superman is to make Superman... Mm -hmm. 
why is he the same person if they're not in it? Arguably, he wasn't the same person. He was still raised by somebody with an idea of good and bad. Mm-hmm. And basically, in 300, what he did was basically stop nuclear war. Yeah. You don't have to be raised by good people to realise that nuclear war may not necessarily be a good thing. Mm. But at the end of it, he's not Superman. That's the point of the story. He's got his powers, and if he's ever needed again, he's quite happy to matter. Yeah, but he isn't. Right. So, and I, I like it as a one-off story. I would hate if that became like a movie mm. where it said, this is now the origin of Superman. I think that would suck. Yeah. But as a one-off story, I like them taking away everything we think about Superman and him still being a decent bloke. I quite I like that. like Red Sun, where it's everything taken away. But I did like Red Sun, but the, the, the point of Red Sun as well, which I thought was remarkable for Matt Miller, mm-hmm. was the, the subtle piece of writing they did in it that Superman, even though he'd landed in Russia and was raised by the Russians now, was still a decent bloke. He was just working for the Russians. And had slightly different ideals. Yeah, but he was still a decent bloke at heart. He wasn't an evil person just because he'd been raised in Russia, Mm. which I thought was a remarkably good piece of writing from him, (laughs) in that people are alike all over. Mm. I thought that was kind of... Superman Red Sun is arguably my favourite thing Mark Miller's ever done. Yeah. Because he didn't feel like he was channelling other writers. Because I don't think he got to the point yet where he'd looked at other people and gone, that sells, I'm going to do that. Well, that, and it's also a well-written story. Yeah. That isn't over-the-top violence and swearing. No, it's Red Sun's actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Have they not done an animated movie of that? Or are they not doing Probably an animated not. movie of that? No, right, okay. Uh, on to part five. Action Comics 544 is one of my favourite anniversary issues that DC put out in the 80s. Yes, the yellow on the cover is a tad off-putting, but I love the trade dress they use for these special issues. I will admit that I cannot be objective about the makeovers that Luther and Brainiac received because, well, these are two action figures that sit near my desk that I had as a kid, lost, and then bought again about ten years ago, as they are so freaking awesome that my bias for these revamps should be set to biblical. On Christmas morning in 1985, little Mike Bailey woke up to find a huge collection of superpowers action figures under the tree, and since most of what we love and adore as an adult comes from what we are exposed to as an impressionable age, it only makes sense that I would have an unreasonable affection towards these looks for Luther and Brainiac. The neat thing about these revamps is that the stories that revealed them were both pretty good. I admit that I preferred the Luther story, but that's because I prefer Luther as a villain. This is nothing against Marv Wolfman or even Gil Kane. I love Marv's pre-crisis Superman work, and while Gil Kane is not my preferred Superman, he still does good work, but more on that in a second. To my mind, the Luther story had more pathos. Carey Bates managed to take a rivalry that had been going on for decades and kick it up to the next level. The real tragedy is that Luther did everything to himself. His unreasoning hatred of all mankind led him to threaten even the children of the planet Krypton. (laughs) Well played, sir. Well played. Wait, that's not right. His unreasoning hatred of Superman led him to destroy not only the one world that would accept him, but the one woman that loved him and bore him a son. I would love to see them adapt this story into one of the DC animated films as I feel the plot and character work stand up all of these decades later. About Gil Kane. I have thought long and hard about why I'm not a fan of Gil Kane's Superman work and once again Andy put the final piece into place for me. It was under the settee. I, I just found it when I was hoovering. Andy mentions that to him, Kane was a breath of fresh air for Superman because of where he was as a comic fan when he discovered Kane's issues. For a very similar reason, I have issues with what Gil brought to The Man of Steel. My first exposure to Gil Kane on Superman came in 1995 when he drew a handful of Superman issues written by Dan Jurgens. Then, as now, I loved Jurgens' artwork, and when this other guy came in, I was a bit put off. 
It doesn't help that some of the stories weren't all that strong, but because I felt that Gil Kane was an usurper of sorts, I had a bias against him. Looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight and more importantly perspective, I can appreciate what Kane brought to the Man of Steel, but there will always be a part of me that thinks there is something off about his Superman work. And I can fully understand people thinking that about Gil Kane's artwork. Mm -hmm. But I just loved it. I've never read Superman 400. I'm sorry, what? Mike Bailey's never read Superman 400? Not other than that, but there's a Superman story Mike Bailey hasn't read. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised by that. <laughs> it is part of my Bronze Age blind spot, continues Mike. Based on the reviews given here, I'm very much looking forward to it. Whilst I can't give up my thoughts on the story, I can say that the portfolio that collects all the pin-ups from this issue is one of my holy grails as a Superman reader, collector and fan. Occasionally I will check eBay for it and end up getting depressed because all of the various pin-ups are either spread out piecemeal or all together but for a sum of money that's a bit out of my reach. But I want the portfolio, like a lot. Someday I want it too. I also want the Gil K, not Gil K, mm. George Perez Lonely Place of Dying one. But again, that's a bit pricey. Superman 10 will always be tied up to the summer of 1987. That was my first summer of Superman collecting life. So that was the summer that Michael started collecting <laughs> Superman comics. <laughs> and I was hip deep in the Man of Steel. Not as much as I would become, but I went all in in what was available to me. Not only were there all these Superman comics to read, but the fourth movie was coming out. So I vividly remember buying and reading and loving this issue. Even now I rather like it. I like Andy see the Silver Age elements that Byrne kept in the titles even though he supposedly threw all those out with the baby in the bathwater. I appreciate the plug for From Crisis to Crisis towards the end of your review and yes, Jeff and I did get a bit weary of the info dumps Byrne would lay at our feet at the end of nearly every issue. Superman 12 was a fun retelling of a classic Superman story. This was one of those rare times as a young collector where I'd read the original story the new take was based on. On the one hand, the original is a classic. On the other hand, Byrne draws a much prettier lorry than Wayne Boring did. On one hand, the original is a tighter story. On the other, this had more nudity. <laughs> Always a plus. <laughs> I will agree. And awesome flashback. Huh. Still, I think Byrne did a great job updating this idea for his take on Superman. My one problem with the story is that Schmidt threw a knife at Laurie's back. Why didn't Clark, you know, throw something at him to knock his ass hat out until he could get Laurie some help? I see why Byrne didn't do that, but still, it kind of bugs me. Schmidt would come back, by the way, in a later Dan Jurgens issue of Superman. Clark would recognise him as the captain of the boat they are on. If memory serves, that was also the issue where it was revealed that Laurie was alive. Laurie's alive! Laurie's alive! Was well, Brian Blessed when you need him? Well, I think I did a decent interpretation mm. of Brian Blessed. Yeah. Well, I've rambled on long enough. Looking forward to the next two parts of the series and wish Andy a speedy recovery from all the work that went into making these episodes. <laughs> You're very welcome. If only we got paid for it. Mm -hmm. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Uh, and I think we've spent far too long on emails tonight, so the rest will have to wait. So, we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast promo for How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. I'm Johnny Freiberg. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. And so we are a podcast about comics. Well, mostly. We also talk about other geeky stuff. And originally our gimmick was that Knox was new to comics. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. He's been reading for a couple of months now, so maybe he has a little bit of a better idea. But... He's still fairly new, you know, a couple months. Most of you have been reading all your lives, so have I. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. Now why don't you tell him where you can find us? You can find us at howtomakeageek.libsyn.com. Now what do I say? Uh, also on iTunes. Also, 
You can find us on iTunes. Yes, that's right, iTunes. At How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. So just search that. How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes with Knox Van Horn and Johnny Freiberg. Can I do anything for you? You do too much. College, a job, all this time with me. You're not Superman, you know. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> Finally, we arrive here with the eighth and final week of Happy Birthday, Superman. This week we are eschewing the traditional look at a decade of Superman because, well, it's only three years into this decade. Plus, as of September 2011, DC Comics embarked upon the new publishing initiative called the New 52. This basically meant that almost the entire line of DC Comics were cancelled and all relaunched with new origins, backstories and costumes. Irrespective of my personal feelings on the new 52 version of certain characters, we would have covered this if there had been more to cover. But given that we've already covered Grounded, I really do think 18 months isn't really long enough to look at this decade with any kind of historical context or distance. To that end, for the last episode of Happy Birthday Superman, we have decided to cover a comic book that features my two favourite heroes together. The Doctor and Captain James T. Kirk. No, Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man. This was actually the second meeting of the pair, as they previously clashed in Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, published in January of 1976. But when I first read this story, I had no idea that that even existed. I found this on the stands in the summer of 1981 in its UK reprint form. The UK version was not quite treasury size, but was a little larger than the standard UK monthly comics of the time. The cover was similar to the US one, but was not painted, so whether it was produced from the original pencils or redrawn, I can't say. It cost a whopping pound, which was probably a lot at that time, but my grand had bought it for me anyway. I suspect this nostalgic head rush and the fact that as far as I was concerned this was the first time they had met would explain why I prefer this one to their first historic team-up. But in rereading both for this coverage I can honestly say I think this one holds up better. Which is not to say I don't find the first one fun and entertaining. I do, but this hangs together better as a story as we'll discuss later. I picked up the treasury edition of both this and the first volume, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, pretty much when eBay started for a pretty decent price for both of them, much cheaper than they sell for now. The 1995 reprint, which we also have here and is also in my possession, thanks to my lovely wife. I was looking through all the reprints when they came out, but I only bought Batman Incredible Hulk, mainly because I didn't and still don't have the treasury of that and hadn't read it at that point. Angela asked why I was putting back the two Spider-Man Superman volumes, and I explained I already had them, but having the smaller versions does make getting them out and reading them easier, but I couldn't justify buying things that technically I already had. She nodded sagely, and I bought my weekly comics and the Batman Hulk reprint and thought no more of it. A few days later I came home from work and she gave me a brown paper bag and said open it. I could tell it was comics, no fool me, but didn't have a clue what it was. So, given that the best solution to finding out what is in a package is to open it, unless it's ticking, I tore it open to reveal both the reprints of those two Titanic team-ups. My wife rocks. You were ickle. Was that? You were very, very ickle. Very ickle. That ickle. Very, yeah. You were like, I carried you around in my pocket. <laughs> anyway, this story had a very interesting genesis. According to writer Jim Shooter, Jeanette Kahn... 
Khan. Thank you. The head cheese of DC Comics got in touch and asked why they didn't do a series of Marvel DC team-ups that would be good for both companies' bottom line. Over lunch, they agreed that each company would take it in turn to produce the books. Each would have editorial approval, and each would split the profits 50-50. For reasons lost to time, Marvel was chosen to develop the first team-up, and it was decided there would be another meeting between the two biggest characters, Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man. Shooter stated that the accounts department estimated that this team-up would add $300,000 to Marvel's bottom line, and Warners reckoned the book could make well over half a million dollars. Shooter picked Marv Wolfman to write the script, whilst he himself would plot. John Buscema was picked to pencil and Joe Sinnott to ink. When Wolfman's contract with Marvel expired, Shooter took the job of scripting and plotting himself, but promptly lost four months waiting for DC editorial director Joe Orlando to approve the plot. Office politics also got in the way of the clash between Jim Galton, head of Marvel at the time, Paul Levitz on DC's side claiming Shooter was late with the plot, and all this resulted in Jeanette Khan arguing on Shooter's behalf, and Shooter being forced to miss a UK convention due to being told he had to finish the script that weekend or the deal was off. With the script completed and approved, time had to be made up, and with Buscema drawing the book off DC's style guides provided by Garcia Lopez, the pencils looked good, but numerous inkers were called in to help finish the book on time. The cover is a gloriously painted number by Bob Larkin from a layout by John Romita. Larkin was the man responsible for the many excellent covers that graced the fireside trade paperbacks from Marvel in the 70s. You may also have seen his work on the cover of numerous Doc Savage books, Hulk and Kiss magazine. If you are not aware of Larkin's work, go and look him up. He really is a hugely underrated talent and the precursor to Alex Ross and that kind of painted art style. It shows Superman and Spider-Man landing in the foreground, whilst Doctor Doom and the Parasite advance menacingly on them in the back. I think it's great. It cost a whopping $2.50 in its original US form. What do you think of that cover, Michael? I think it's great. Not as good as the first one, but I think it's really good, the painting. It's not as iconic as the first one. No. And I don't understand why the parasite's grey yeah. instead of purple. But You can't open purple. Yeah. But, but Larkin draws an excellent Superman. They're both landing with the backs to the bad guys. Yeah. So unless they're really confident they can take them both out with an elbow to the face. <laughs> well, and why would they not? <laughs> Although Spider-Man can't elbow the parasite, obviously. Yeah. And you dare not lay your hands upon the personage of Doom! Well, Superman would be so fast. It's well, Superman really could just go and blow the parasite backwards. And yeah. then Spider-Man could lay a quick kick to Doom and then Doom would have to rip his legs off for his personal affront. Or Superman could use his... Uh, ice breath and turn him into an axe. That works as well. Of course, having the two heroes land with the back to us probably yeah. wouldn't work very well. <laughs> I could do one of those Marvel covers with the bad guys as silhouettes in the foreground. Yeah. Yeah, that would work. But um, there is, at the back of this, there is an alternative cover sketched by John Buscema of Superman in his traditional breaking out of chains thing and Spider-Man just swinging around. Which is also on the back cover of the 1996 edition. So that was quite nice. Originally released as Marvel Treasury Edition number 28 on April 28, 1981, this was officially credited to scripter Jim Shooter. Marv Wolfman receives a thanks for the plot suggestions credit. The penciler was John Buscema. The inkers were Terry Austin, Klaus Janssen, Bob Layton, Steve Lealoa, 
Bob McLeod, the Clan McLeod, <laughs> Al Milgram, never get bored of that. <laughs> Joseph Rubenstein, Walter Simonson, Joe Sinat, and Bob Wyasek. Although there have been some disputes about some of the Incas, with Brett Breeding saying that he actually inked Bob Layton's stuff as he was Layton's assistant at the time. Well, I wonder if he got paired, or if Bob Layton got paired. <laughs> The inside front cover is a monochromatic retelling of both heroes' origins. The artwork in both is astonishingly good, by Prisema, it looks like, and both characters receive creator credit. But while Superman's origin is fine, this Spider-Man retelling completely obliterates all mention of Uncle Ben, making it seem like Peter Parker got his powers and immediately went out to fight crime. I think we may use the little one, because right. I can't get me Treasure Edition to stay open. That's out the back in this one. Yes, it's on the back page of the 1996 re- reprint. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong, and, and the artwork's brilliant. It's one of the few times Buscema drew Spider-Man, and the only time Buscema drew Superman. And he draws a fantastic Superman, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Absolutely fantastic. So I do like it, I just thought the omission of Uncle Ben was a little bit weird. But that's just me. The Hero and the Holocaust begins in Manhattan at midnight. Everybody's favourite wall-crawling wonder happens upon what he thinks is a standard robbery. Dime store folks are breaking into a bank next to a construction site, but are armed with laser guns. Spider-Man still manages to make short work of the thugs, and as the police arrive, responding to an anonymous tip-off, Spider-Man, his trusty camera retrieved from the spot where he left it, retreats into the night. Watching the whole debacle is Doctor Doom. In a piece of ultimate irony, the thugs were two-bit hoods, but were armed with weaponry Doom himself created. Fortunately, they were caught before they could discover the real secret of the destruction site. Project Omega. A plan so diabolical, it has taken Doom many years and a metric ton of money to instigate, but when completed, will lead Doom to rule. Finally, to rule. He then turns his attention to the next phase of the plan. Operation H, which concerns the Incredible Hulk. The next day, Peter Parker, a.k.a. the aforementioned Spider-Man, attends college and then tries to sell his pictures to the Daily Bugle. The Bugle's publisher, J. Jonah Jameson, is having none of it. Spider-Man's old hat, he yells. The Hulk has been seen near Metropolis with another self-styled do-gooder. What's-his-name hangs out? Jonah screams, pointing at a poster of Superman on the wall. Give me pictures of them! In Metropolis, home of the aforementioned self-styled do-gooder, what's his name, a Daily Planet helicopter containing crusading reporters Lois Lane and Clark Kent and two others, a pilot and a cameraman, speeds over to a site of pure destruction. The Hulk has hit Metropolis. Clark is confused as to how a lumbering brute can be staying out of sight unless he's been guided somehow, but he has no time to ponder as the chopper heads back to the planet for a staff meeting. Clark decides he has an elsewhere to be and uses his superpowers to fake an earthquake and, in the ensuing melee, ducks away to change into that self-styled do-gooder what's-his-name, Superman. Superman confronts the Hulk, who complains about a constant buzzing, and even the last son of Krypton is staggered by the sheer brute strength on display. As if to emphasise his point, the Hulk brings the house down, literally, on Superman's head. Peter Parker chooses this moment to egress from a Greyhound bus, and figures he could get Jonah some better pictures as Spider-Man. Superman strikes back, punching the Green Goliath into a nearby structure, where he lands and remains dormant. Superman leaps over to help, fearing he has hurt the creature, but the Hulk was merely luring Superman in and responds with a punch to the face. 
Superman hurls far away, out of sight. But the Hulk, still being hounded by buzzing, smashes the floor before him, causing the metropolitan landscape to buckle and creak. With Superman a no-show, Spider-Man decides he is all that stands between the Hulk and a levelled city. But Superman, who has spent a lifetime specialising in last-minute rescues, rocks back up. Fed up and more than a little annoyed, Superman tells the Hulk to take his best shot. The Hulk pounds away at the Metropolis Marvel, getting madder and stronger, but Superman will not be moved. As the Hulk continues to give it all he's got, even Superman feels that the outcome may not be as cut and dried as he had hoped, but his super senses spot a miniature drone buzzing around the Hulk. Lightning-fast reflexes react and Superman snatches the drone from the Hulk and crushes it. With the noise abruptly ceased, the Hulk staggers, unsure, and Superman manages to calm him down, causing the metamorphosis that returns the Hulk to the form of Dr. Bruce Banner. Spider-Man, realising he's nothing but a fifth wheel, also disappears, and Superman takes off. He will return later to help with the clean-up efforts, but for now he intends to find out who was controlling the Hulk, and why. Amidst the debris of battle, however, lies a man. Superman would have seen had he elected to clear up straight away. A man in possession of the power to steal the very life force from others. The Parasite. For he is the reason Doom steered the Hulk in this direction, for it is he Doom seeks. With the Hulk having unwittingly freed the Parasite, he is stumbling to the surface, but weak. The populace have been held back by the police, and the Parasite finds himself free from the underground prison Superman entombed him within, but ironically unable to move. Suddenly a surge of power, and the Parasite is infused with energy. The Parasite considers dallying, draining the source for more, as they must be far more than human. But no, with power aplenty, he disappears to meet with doom. The source of the power, however, one Peter Parker, stumbles, falls, but is fortunately caught by a comely ginger. Alas, it's not Murray Jane, but Jimmy Olsen who treats the weakened Mr. Parker to a coffee and then a tour of the Galaxy Building whilst Jimmy takes care of the film Peter wants developing. Jimmy introduces Pete to Steve Lombard, who Pete, being a shrewd judge of character, takes an instant dislike to. Lewis, who we met previously, and Lana Lang, who makes Peter all tingly and not in a spider-sense kind of way. Perry pays Pete three times the amount Jonah would have paid for his pictures, and Pete considers moving to Metropolis full-time. Clark Kent, meanwhile, has took a leave of absence from his job, Morgan Edge be damned, and Superman takes to the skies where he realises that the parasite has gone. Deducing that of the two men that could have pulled off such a plan, one of them, namely Lex Luthor, is still locked away, he journeys to the Latverian embassy to take an audience with the other, Doctor Doom. Upon entry, Superman attempts to scan the domicile with X-ray vision, but Doom has had the building lead-lined. After pleasantries, Doom attempts to argue that he and Superman are very much alike, but Superman's having none of it. So, to the surprise of no one, Doom activates a kryptonite ray, but Superman thinks quick. He wraps himself up in the lead floor, melts it into a thin, flexible covering so he can move, and before Doom can act, hurls the kryptonite, powering the ray, into the sun. Hello, Scott. Superman threatens to rip Doom from his armour, but Doom points out he is on Latverian soil, and thus Superman is powerless. Superman decides, therefore, to take some time off, and as Clark Kent journeys to New York. There, he takes a freelance gig at the Daily Bugle, hoping that with Clark so high-profile, it will prevent Doom and the Parasite from attacking Superman's friends and allies. No sooner has he arrived than a jumbo jet sees fit to ruin his day and plummet from the sky. 
a job for Superman. There are many such jobs over the next few days, leading to a few stories for Jameson, but not much downtime. Eventually, Superman's investigations lead him to Latveria, the fatherland of doom, where he is sprayed by an undetectable particle beam whilst investigating an unusual construction site being built. Learning of the weapons used by the bank robbers, he asks the local police to see them. Meanwhile, the parasite grows impatient with Doom, and Doom grows weary of the parasite. Doom reveals his plans to no man, but shows the parasite that he has captured the Hulk and awaits but one more pawn in the game. In Metropolis, Peter asks Lana out, but crashes and burns, much to the amusement of Steve Lombard. Lombard pretends to offer Pete some advice, but puts a I struck out with Lana Lang poster on his back. Changing to Spider-Man, Peter finds the poster and glues up Lombard's chair with webbing, much to the amusement of Lombard's lady friend. Spider-Man gets caught up in a gunfight between Cop and Crooks, but as usual is thought to be on the side of the Crook. The Crook is caught, so Spider-Man flees rather than explain himself to the cops, and as he swings across Metropolis, his Spider-Sense gives the old warning buzz as he passes a construction site. Recalling how all this began, he decides to investigate. Finding a trapdoor, Spidey does little breaking and entering to find Wonder Woman engaged in battle with a gang of goons. And even Doom starts showing a little concern, despite her being the second that he was waiting for, as Wonder Woman mops the floor with his hired help. Seeing Spider-Man, however, Doom thinks on his feet and bellows through the intercom that, Behold your quarry, Spider-Man! The female is our enemy! Doom decrees! Attack! Spidey can't believe that Wonder Woman is going to fall for such an obvious ruse, but fall she does, and attacks first. Spider-Man realises that going toe-to-toe with an Amazon princess may be a little dumb, and instead finds the light switch and plunges the room into darkness. Spider-Man makes the point that if he really were a bad guy, he could have taken advantage of the situation, and Wonder Woman agrees, but before a strategy can be formulated to find out who was behind the capture, Doom's reinforcement arrive. The concussion rays take out Wonder Woman, and Spider-Man manages to take cover. Doom has managed to build a subway between Metropolis and New York without anybody finding out, and Wonder Woman is loaded upon it as Spider-Man stows away. Arriving at Omega-1, the lackeys disembark, and Parasite says he wants Wonder Woman. And when Parasite explains that he longs to eat, to sleep, to love, but is forever forbidden from doing so due to his condition, Doom feels some measure of pity, and takes Parasite into his confidence. Doom monologues, even more than usual, about how he has constructed Omega installations all over the world and they will simultaneously emit a peculiar radiation, which is its scientific name, into the Earth's crust and mantle, turning all fossil fuels into sand. Doom will then destroy all atomic fuels. Then, with the world in chaos, Doom will offer the world salvation, thanks to the fusion reactor based at Omega-1. One world under Doom. With the Parasite as his good right arm, Doom will be master of all. But after that, wonders Parasite, what need will I have of Doom? Spider-Man, who has heard all of this, decides this is way out of his league and retreats to find heavy-duty help. As Spider-Man finds his way out to the Manhattan construction site, Superman, who has been monitoring events here, says he will take on Doom and Parasite alone, but Spider-Man remembers that Doom said he'd allowed for the Metropolis Marvel's interference and follows anyway. Superman has, of course, already made it to Doom's dungeon and takes out Parasite and a squad of soldiers handily. Doom bars at this and unleashes a fusion reactor-powered robot, which Superman finds not as easy to take down. Parasite extricates himself from the quick lockup Superman placed him in and is about to creep up on the Man of Steel and siphon off his power when Spider-Man arrives and kicks old Parasite right in the face. 
this is a mistake, and Parasite now has Spider-Man's abilities and the Spider and the Fly conflict ensues, with Parasite weakening Spidey even more and avoiding his web shooters. Spidey makes a last-ditch effort to help Superman by blocking the robot's visual receptors, allowing Superman a chance to knock its block off. Doom, however, is prepared even for this eventuality, and subjects Superman to a kryptonite dust that is infused into the fabric of his costume, and even the pores of his skin thanks to the particle beam he was covered in back in Latveria. Spider-Man, stunned, allows himself to be knocked out by Parasite. Doom is triumphant. Doom chains up Spider-Man in an interesting-looking BDSM device, and Wonder Woman and Hulk are in their funny tubes. Superman lies inert on a table. Doom goes to strap the Enervator harness on Parasite that will enable him to siphon all of the power, but the last remnants of Spider-Sense warn Parasite of danger. Doom doesn't want Parasite at all. He wants to use the harness to reduce the heroes to lifeless husks, yes, but in turn, the harness will devolve Parasite into a crystalline mass, a crystalline mass that Doom can use to stabilise his wonky fusion reactor. From there, he will control all energy, not just of the Earth, but in the universe. Parasite doesn't take too kindly to this, especially the devolving Parasite part of the plan, and fights back, punching Doom into a control panel. Spider-Man uses the distraction to shoot his webbing all over Superman and slowly peel it off like a lint brush. Slowly, agonizingly, Spider-Man pulls the webbing off the prone Man of Steel. The duo make like the cavalry and Parasite turns to fight, but Doom realizes that the control panel Parasite just destroyed was integral to the fusion reactor's inner workings and is about to blow up real good, taking the Earth with it. Doom decides now may be a good time for a change of scenery, but Superman grabs him and rips his gauntlets right off his wrists. Doom has no time to worry about such effrontery and bails, and Superman lets him go, donning the gauntlet which Superman has deduced is impervious to Parasite's power. With it, he punches Parasite out cold. Spider-Man notes that the reactor can't attack no more, and Superman realises why Doom fled. Superman dives into the heart of the reactor and orders Spider-Man to stop the overload, whatever it takes. Superman tries to hold the reactor together, but the plasma inside is similar to the conditions under a red sun. If Spider-Man doesn't hurry up, Superman will fry to death. Doom reaches Doom's shuttle, but Doom's blast-off is prevented by Spider-Man's webbing, which has gummed up Doom's instruments. Doom is displeased. Meanwhile, Spider-Man considers trying to track down the Fantastic Four or the Avengers, but has no time. He has to figure out the reactor himself. With nearly a second to spur, Spider-Man pulls a lever. That's it, yeah, he, he just pulls a lever. The reactor cools down. Superman, a little woozy, takes off after Doom with Spider-Man in hot pursuit. They arrive too late. Doom is safe in the Latverian embassy, where he vows that next time he will destroy the Man of Steel. Spider-Man notes that he's probably cooking up some new scheme even now, but Superman points out that even Doom's resources are infinite, and this costs a lot of money. This should be okay for a while. The next day, in Metropolis, Clark Kent returns to his job to explain the loose ends of the plot, such as what happened to the Hulk and Wonder Woman, and what he did with the huge, deadly fusion reactor in the middle of Metropolis, and learns he missed seeing Peter Parker, who just left as he was feeling homesick. In New York, Peter returns to the Daily Bugle, where J. Jonah Jameson welcomes him back with a cool, free glass of water. But Peter's request for a raise falls on deaf ears. There's no place like home. Hey, 
page one. An excellent splash page that at first bloom seems destined to have little to do with the main story. Interestingly, Superman gets top billing on the cover, whilst Spider-Man gets top billing on page one. Did you get turns? Did they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like Cagney and Lacey. Mm-hmm. Cagney and Lacey, Sharon Glass and Tyndale used to take it in turns who got credited first every week. Lacey and Cagney. No, no, the show was still called Cagney and Lacey, because Lacey and Cagney just does not work. But one week Sharon Glass would be billed first, and then the next week Tyndale, and then the week after they'd split it around. Okay. So they both got top billing. Mm-hmm. Well, they did used to do that flipping the title around, though. It was in Simon and Simon. Uh-huh. <laughs> you see what I did there. Uh, originally, I thought the thugs had laser pop guns to avoid any problems with the comics code. <laughs> but Shooter actually makes it part of the plot. Mm-hmm. That's a great splash page. I really like that splash. Although page. you were right, they do use them just to uh, avoid the comics code. Yeah, probably. Mm. So they're not actually shooting at Spider-Man with weapons. Yeah, of any kind. Well, if they were, they'd have to be painted bright orange. <laughs> Like your Han Solo blaster pistol, which is bright orange. Whereas mine is black. Mm-hmm. Because mine is the original from 1978. Yeah. And I still have it. I still have mine. It's broken because Adam has it. You don't let your brother touch your blaster pistol, dude. <laughs> Page two. Shooter will do this a few times in the issue. I've mentioned before. I read an article on creative writing where somebody stated, and I think it may have been Harlan Ellison, that if you want the reader, viewer, whatever, to care about a character, you give them a name. Here, whilst we don't really need to care about the thugs, Shooter gives at least one of them a name, Joel McGuinness. And that simple act means we have a background for this guy all worked out in our head. Uh, where the heck do dime store thugs like them get sophisticated hardware like that? Asked Spider-Man. Well, according to the DC Marvel team-up rules, the answer to that is intergang. Is it? No. Oh. It's Doctor Doom. Oh, well, I know it's Doctor Doom. <laughs> I've read the comic. I thought you were privy to some knowledge I was not aware of. No, no. Right. We could have had it in Skang, which... Doctor Doom, maybe Doctor Doom gets his technology from Inskang. Maybe these guys, you know, Doom built the pop guns. He actually says that later on. With Intergang technology. Well, you could argue maybe they do work for Intergang, because these guys don't know that they got these weapons from Doctor Doom. Which so is a plot point. Doctor Doom... Is supplying Intergang yeah. through a third person who does not let Intergang know that he's working for Doctor Doom. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Your pithy little funny <laughs> actually is true. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that, yeah. I like that. Uh, some product placement on the bottle of page two. Mm-hmm. Spidey uses a Nikon. Ka-ching! And we rack up the uh, the product placement dollars. Poses with a uh, Coke can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, fighting crime sure makes me thirsty. <laughs> Uh, after an evening of taking down some thugs with laser pop guns supplied by Dr. Doom, I like nothing better than a cool, refreshing Coke. And sometimes I need to clean my clothes, so use this home <laughs> iron. It's the real thing. Aerial tabs. And if I get peckish, <laughs> McDonald's. I'm loving it. Stop for a subway along the way. <laughs> Just turn Spider-Man into Booster Gold. <laughs> oh dear me! Um, page three. I always like it when Spider-Man sings to put the bad guys off. <laughs> Call me irresponsible, and I love that he goes Scooby-Doo up, do up because he didn't know the words. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. I really did like that. Um, there's also a really good subtle story beat here. Mm. Spider-Man's spider sense goes off. But he has no idea why. Well, that will play later into the story. I just assumed it was because um, 
four panels after that we can see Doctor Doom's hand. Yeah, but he doesn't know Doctor Doom's watching him on these what's it no, but we do. screens, but we do. Is it still a subtle subplot though? Yeah, because his spider sense is going off because of what's underneath the construction site. Which later on in the story, when he sees the construction site in Metropolis, and his spider sense goes off again, he puts two and two together. Mm-hmm. And goes, wait a minute. Yeah, well, we know that anyway, so is it still subtle? I thought so. Okay. Because here, we don't know why his spider sense is going off. Except for Doctor Doom. But when we get to the bit at the end, Spidey figures it out. I mean, we know, sorry, that Doctor Doom's causing it, but Spidey yeah. doesn't. And I like that later on in Metropolis, when the same thing happens, Spidey puts it together, showing that he's got a brain in his head. But it isn't spelt out for him. Right. He just goes, wait a minute, I'm on another construction site and my spider sense is going off. This is far too coincidental. Well, you know why spider sense is actually going off at the construction site? Why? Because this con- underneath this construction site there's a, a mining shaft, but the... Um the, the Blakely main disaster. The, the mining uh, <laughs> mine. They're up to standards. I do like it. I mean, we were just mocking this. But Spider-Man clearly says, he, I should have only had two Big Macs. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sure Big Mac is a trademark yeah. of the McDonald's yeah. corporation. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, we were just mocking <laughs> the product placement. But Any true words for the yeah. <laughs> And I love Spider-Man leaving the police and just saying, yeah, go kiss a moose. (laughs) (laughs) He's completely iconoclastic, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I love Spider-Man like this. I mean, I get that guilt is a heavy part of his character, but let's not forget that the guy was funny. He's only guilt uh, tripped when his mask's off. Yeah. I mean, he will go through some guilt later on, won't he? We'll get a mention of Uncle Ben, (laughs) because it's not a Spider-Man story without that. And he was also parallax. That's true. Uh, The cops speeding through the the town... I like to drive fast. Use the siren. Makes me feel like Kojak, you know? Well, that was not a New York accent. No. So I do apologize. I don't know what accent that Kojak. was. Kojak. Uh, the cops feeling like Kojak was an interesting piece of pop culture referencing. Kojak, starring Telly Savalas, went off the air in 1978, so a more appropriate reference may have been Starsky and Hutch, which went off the air in 1979, or even Magnum P.I., which had been on the air for two years when this came out. Although Kojak is still well known today. Uh, or it may have been a reference to, sell, to Telly Savalis almost appearing in Superman the movie. Okay. Almost. There's other thing with don't a lot of cops say they've never actually used the siren. I know like, a lot You have those character beats when, when there's a, a cop in the story that's like, I never had to use my siren. Oh, my favourite one of them is I've never pulled my gun. And you're like, you know <laughs> that's coming out of its holster before the end of the film. <laughs> yeah. So that's dire, isn't it? Probably. I've never pulled out. I've never shot somebody. No, he ch- had shot somebody, but he killed somebody, didn't he? Yeah. And since then, he hadn't pulled out his gun. And so, at the end, when he pulls out his gun, it's a, a major stereotypical police story where he shot some kid and has thus turned his back on fighting crime. And <laughs> no, he'd not done that. Think of the donuts. <laughs> the Twinkies in uh, in his case wasn't it yeah he was how many Twinkies was he buying and he said oh my wife's pregnant and the guy behind the counter was like yeah okay he knew they were going out of business yeah uh, stocking up uh, Al Powell had knew that Twinkies were going out of business in Dyer that's why he was buying so many how did we get on the subject of Al Powell from Spider-Man Superman I have no idea uh, page 4 has a wonderful splash page of Doctor Doom I say a splash page. Uh, top panel. It's not a splash page. Uh, Buscema perfectly captures the feeling of power that just exudes from doom. 
I always thought that Doom would be an imposing presence, but would also be a fascinating conversationalist and raconteur, as if Stephen Fry had turned to the dark side. The panel beautifully mixes Kirby tech with a more modern sensibility. There is, however, more dialogue in this one page than in all of the first volume of Ultimate Spider-Man. <laughs> and that's totally true. I counted the words. <laughs> did you? No. Fair enough. Totally made that up. But, you know... It's plausible, though. I actually did count the words. Did and, you? Um, <laughs> all of Doctor Doom's dialogue in this is more than uh, Bendis' Avengers <laughs> in its entirety. If you start the entire eight years that he wrote the yeah. Avengers, Doctor Doom's dialogue in this is more. You got to count the events as well. So Secret Invasion and Siege, and you, you have to count you them. You totally counted that. Whereas I, I just made my fact up. Yep. Whereas you, you, I spent many a day laboring through every word, counting every word. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe me. Either. I don't believe you. To quote Perry White in Superman Two, Doom does not believe you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He does talk a lot, doesn't he? I I've love... been counting my words. Doom likes this. <laughs> I love that Doom says, bah! <laughs> Which is humbug. Yeah. I mean, so this dialogue's brilliant. So commands Dr. Doom. Who are you talking to, dude? There's only you in the room. It's all dialogue. There's always dialogue. Oh, it, it covers the art. Yeah, and so it's just brilliant. Bah! The workings of fate are ever against me. Curse the stars that guided those wretched burglars to the bank directly above this complex. The irony is it that their weapons were of my own creation. Prototypes sold to the underworld so that I might observe them under combat conditions via special television monitor circuitry hidden inside. And, uh, what? I, Who were you telling all this to? I have to say, I do like how... Now, this was I thought was very subtle here. But whenever Doom speaks, the comic turns into prose. <laughs> <laughs> my labour, my genius, have brought me to the threshold of world domination, and doom will not be denied, for truly, the life's work, the masterpiece of doom is Project Omega. And it's genius, but you're sat there going, who are you talking to? Why are you saying all that? Surely would sound a lot better for his Project Alpha. Yeah, but I do like, but no, maybe Alpha failed. <laughs> so he's moved on to Omega. Fair enough. I love beta. All of this though, page five. It's explained. Doom talks to himself because he's recording his every utterance. Mm-hmm. Of course he is. I actually do like that. So oh, I, I found my soliloquy last night to be quite entertaining. <laughs> That's exactly what he says, which is genius. And it, I, I love the idea that he listens back to them as entertainment. As entertainment. I will listen to myself as I talk because I feel I was particularly inspirational today. That's like me listening back to my own show and going, God, I'm good. He poses naked for himself to take. <laughs> That's just a level of egotism that is here for two unthinkable. Because believe it or not, level listener, I do not go back and listen to these for pleasure. Michael does. But I don't. Um, let's take a moment. Let's take a pause yeah. in the, the narrative of Doom. Which, you are right, these two pages of Doom talking have more dialogue in than a novel. <laughs> um, to reflect on Doom's plan, which is, quite frankly, ludicrous. Mm-hmm. But I know I bought into it. <laughs> I totally bought into it. Because we learn here, and Shooter just keeps building this up as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. that he's built the underground bunkers in all the major cities in the world without anybody knowing that he was behind it. 
So it's all done through shell companies. What I particularly liked about this scene was not only did Doom mention the cost, which he describes as being staggering, but also the unending problems with such an endeavour. Anyone who's ever undertaken any construction work knows that it always costs more than projected. So a project this large will have cost Doom a fortune. But what particularly amused me was the idea that Doom regularly had to take meetings and approve budgets and deal with officious health and safety officers all over the world because he did it all by the book, mostly. (laughs) I thought this was hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. That is, you can just see him sitting at night going over the figures <laughs> going, this is going way over budget. And just going... Mrs. Doom. <laughs> Mrs. Doom complaining that he's spent too much money. Um, Doom also does himself a disservice on this page. Because mm. he says it's brought into the threshold of world domination. Yeah. But as the story unfolds, he's far more ambitious than that. Mm-hmm. He's settling for nothing more than universal domination. What's there else in the universe to dominate? Oh, I'm sure Doom could find <laughs> things. You know, it's it's like it's like thingy, isn't it? In Superman too, it's like Zod. Yeah. Is there no one on this earth who can challenge me? And Doom's like, no, there isn't. So I'm going out there <laughs> to find new challenges. It's awesome, absolutely awesome. Um, I do wonder. Though, when these people do achieve world domination, what will they do with it? Like in Superman 2, Zod was bored in a week, mm-hmm. once he, he had world domination. Here, Doom reflects upon that, wondering, will it make him happy when he's ruler of all he surveys, as he was yesterday and the day before? Hysterically, he looks at himself, sans mask in the mirror, destroys it, and then thinks that when he's in charge, he'll have all mirrors destroyed. Fair enough. Which I thought was great. You know what I actually think? I think he'll have hourly... Uh, <laughs> that he records and then listens to and broadcasted to every television around the world <laughs> I'd love to listen to Doom the podcast <laughs> Doomcast <laughs> Doom is coming to you from sunny Latveria Latveria is wonderful Channel Doom my people are free in Doom. Latveria Doom news <laughs> Doom sport. Doom news. Doom is wonderful. The end. Doom wood. <laughs> yeah, that's the spin-off from the most popular TV show in Latveria. Doctor Doom. Doom wood. The uh, the story of Doom brought to you by Doom Bros. <laughs> the story of Doom, a Doctor Doom production, yeah. written by Doctor Doom, produced by Doctor Doom, directed by Doctor Doom, starring. Doctor Doom, <laughs> and he plays all the parts, or he does it as a puppet show. <laughs> Doctor Doom does his life story on Latveria TV <laughs> with felt hand puppets, in which Reed Richards is this horrible, horrible man. It's like punching Doom still hitting him over the head with a bat on, going, "That's the way Doom does it." <laughs> Doom Studios Island of Doom (laughs) where you can ride the Doom poster Latveria has a theme park come to sunny Latveria you'll never leave Diet Coca Doom (laughs) a big Doom oh dear god Um, McDonald's Doom's loving it (laughs) would it not be McDoom's 
Doom loves this. I am Diet Doom and a big Doom. Extra Doom on With an extra pickle and Doom sauce. Oh, I think we're getting carried away now. Funny enough. Oh, yeah. Uh, the last panel off this page is a shot of the Hulk which is again wonderful again exuding raw power nice little touch probably added by whoever inked this page is a ripped poster of Councilman Thorne from the Englehart Rogers Austin Batman run which makes me think that Terry Austin may have inked this mm-hmm. just a clue uh, why there's a poster of a councilman from Gotham City in Metropolis is unknown yeah maybe he was running for councillor in Metropolis as well I don't know how that works or well, maybe think. just like anyone reading this, he got his uh, geography confused. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Uh, page six, Peter's late for class and asks out a pretty blonde named Cindy. At this point in Spider-Man's life, Mary Jane was gone from the picture and he hadn't yet started dating the black cat. He was kind of on off again with Deborah Whitman. Cindy wants to go to an Elvis Costello concert. Okay. Which still works, doesn't it? Elvis Costello's still around. Um, perhaps to make up for completely skipping it in the recap page, Uncle Ben's death is mentioned here. And Aunt May. <clears throat> and Aunt May gets a thought balloon. Looking suspiciously to me like she was drawn by John Ramita. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? That looks like a Ramita Aunt May. I would go out with all these girls, but the little codgers just won't die yet. <laughs> die, bitch! <laughs> um, Uncle Ben's death, I've mentioned that. Uh, personally, I thought it was a little out of character at this point in Spider-Man's history. Whilst Ben's murder was always the through line that created the character, the writers of this time period didn't really go back to that particular well anywhere near as much as they do now. Mm. Maybe Shooter realised that, oh, crap, I've written that recap thing and not mentioned Uncle Ben. <laughs> oh, bloody hell, that's kind of important, man. I mean, imagine doing a Spider-Man origin where we don't mention Uncle Ben. You mean like the 70s TV show, Jim? Oh, yeah, forgot about that. Moving on, the one and only appearance by Aunt May, and let's face it, it's not completely necessary, is in a thought balloon here. Mm-hmm. Didn't miss her, really, to be <laughs> honest really. with you. Peter, remember to eat your breakfast. You're not Superman, you know. <laughs> Knowing wink at the audience. <laughs> Cut away to Superman flag. <laughs> Listening in going, no, he's not. I am. Page seven, J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, like every warden in Metropolis has a poster of <laughs> Superman on his wall. <laughs> we have to be clear here. Jonah doesn't actually send Peter to Metropolis to take photos. Mm. Does he? No. He says, you know, these people have been spotted in Metropolis. I may buy photos of them. But he doesn't actually send Peter. So does Peter go of his own accord? Maybe. Given his permanent cash-strapped nature, I found this a little hard to believe, especially in so tightly applauded a comic as this one. If Jonah had sent Peter to Metropolis, I would have accepted it, especially as Jonah would have totally made Peter take the bus, mm. wouldn't he? I ain't paid for no plane ticket, fool! Well, uh, according to this story, they do exist within each other. Yeah, very close to each other if you can get the bus yeah. and be there in the same morning. So they can't be that far away, it's can down they? the road. Apparently so, yeah. In fact, the Daily Bugle is just down the road from uh, the Daily Planet. The competitors. Mm-hmm. It's well known. Yeah. Perry White and Jonah hate each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Jonah can't stand Perry's cigars because they're only high-quality Havanas. <laughs> Whereas Jonah's, a, you know, a bit of cheap end. And Perry's like, buy some proper cigars, dude. Mm-hmm. And get a proper haircut. And Jonah's all like, shut up, White! Or I'll call you Chief. Exactly like that. Yeah, exactly like that. And Perry White's all, don't call me Chief, Jay Bristlehead. 
Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're in the era here of Lois thinking Clark is a big wimp. Shooter would point out this idiosyncrasy most of the time. The line here is, don't worry, Nick, if Clark Kent is brave enough to go there, you know it can't be dangerous. Very funny, Lois. Very funny. Uh, uh, next time you're about to uh, die in harm's way, I'll just... <laughs> I'll just, I'll just let, let you. <laughs> next time you want to jump into Niagara Falls, feel free. <laughs> uh, page eight. This page was definitely inked by Terry Austin. I would like to say I spotted this due to an intense familiarity with his work, but he signed it. <laughs> if you have a look uh, on the truck, obviously it's clearer in the in the treasury. He signed Austin's on the side of the tr- on the truck. Though, can you see it? Mm. So he definitely inked that page, and you can tell. Really, look at the rubble. Mm. That's Austin rubble. So, because it's really detailed. The only other person who would have done, done that much detail with rubble is George Perez. And I don't think he inked any of this, mm. to be honest with you. Uh, my only real problem with the issue, Superman is but one step behind Doom at every corner, even before he knows Doom is the bad guy. Here, in the helicopter, Clark Kent feels that the only way the Hulk can be hidden after causing so much destruction is if he's being controlled somehow, which is, of course, exactly what's happening. Superman would continue to make wild guesses like this that would proved to be accurate throughout the story. Better, I feel, if Superman's discovery that the Hulk was being guided had happened later in the story, had propelled the story forward and prompted Superman to investigate, that would have been a bit more satisfying with him or, with, than him already guessing what was going on. Did that bother you? That Superman just seemed to know everything that was going on instantly with his super kinetic brain? No, he's, he's super clever. He is at this point. Yeah. He does have a super brain. Um... I've read some criticism of both villains in this story and of the guest stars, and I think this is unnecessary nitpicking. And I do realise that me saying that is the pot greeting the cattle and demanding to be called Mr. Black. Um, If you only sit down and think about it, Shooter's picked a Marvel villain capable of pulling off a plot that not only consists of universal domination, so he needed Doctor Doom for that. Who cares if Doom isn't a traditional Spider-Man adversary? Secondly, I always like the Parasite. I think the Parasite's a cool villain when played straight, and one that can actually cause Superman some problems. Yes, he's in a much weaker power class than Doom, but that's actually a plot point. It didn't hurt that Shooter created the Parasite either, I would imagine. Next, there's a problem with the guests. Why? You've never wanted to see Superman fight the Hulk? Mm. Now, I grant you, Wonder Woman's kind of perfunctory, but I don't think it's a coincidence that all of the main stars in this story had recently starred in their own live-action versions. Wonder Woman went off the air in like 78. Oh, oh, right, yeah. The Linda Carter one, so that'll be fresh in people's heads. The Spider-Man TV series aired in 78-79. The Incredible Hulk TV series had only just gone off the air in 1982. And, of course, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies that had two sequ- uh, Superman 1 and Superman 2 at this point. So I can't help but think that may have played into it. Probably. Did they have a line of action figures as well? I would have loved a line of action figures based on this comic. Mm-hmm. I would totally have bought a Superman Spider-Man action figure set. And then a Doctor Doom Parasite. And a Wonder Woman and Hulk. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. But they won't do it because licenses and all that stuff. At uh, page 9, Lois gets a good jab in at Lana regarding print journalists as real journalists. I did like that although Shooter pays lip service to Clark working for both the TV and newspaper division of Galaxy Communications throughout the story, aimed at a larger audience than the usual comics readers, remember, he's a newspaper man, the job most people associate with Clark Kent. Steve Lombard proves once again that he's a knobhead. (laughs) 
Yesterday he put dog crap in Clark's drawer. Today he plans to get in with a flower that squirts water. Just to clean him off. What a class act. How did he get the dog crap into the drawer? I don't want to know. Gloves or... Uh, I presume he had gloves. Don't he want... Well, he made it. He looks like he only smells strong, doesn't he? <laughs> Clark makes the water backfire with his heat vision, which no one else can see, which leads to a major artistic inconsistency. Clark lifts his glasses to use his X-ray vision on the previous page, mm. but doesn't need to to use his heat vision here. Yeah. Now, I get that the glasses had lenses made from his ship at this point, so he could use his heat vision through the lenses of his specs. So then why did he have to take his glasses off to use X-ray vision? But yeah, why did he have to lift his glasses off to use X-ray vision? Surely the whole point of X-ray vision is it sees see through, through things. Yeah. I thought that was a bit strange. Mm. I may be the only person that's ever noticed that, though. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Um, Perry, not for the first time, wonders how Clark can be so timid and be a good reporter. Page 10. Clark uses super ventriloquism. Which was pretty great. Hoorah! I thought this whole scene was great. We use his ventriloquism and thuds the ground. Yeah, and he just then hits the ground with his thing to make the building shake as if there's an earthquake going on. Yeah. It was awesome. It was an absolutely, utterly, utterly glorious page. Um, speaking of which, page 12 is also wonderful. Mm. Three panels. Clark removing the glasses and tie, then a silhouette shot of him performing the shirt rip where only the red S is highlighted, then an absolutely fantastic shot of Superman taking to the sky. Well, in the Treasury, this is glorious. In both the 1995 standard comic book size reprint and the subsequent trade, they colour Superman's costume incorrectly. Grey. Yes. Which was a bit of a bit of an upset. Mm. In the Treasury, that's coloured properly. The Treasury, if you can find a copy, is really the best way to experience this. The trade and the 95 reprint have colouring errors and the images have to be shrunk a little, even on the comics page, as the dimensions of the trade paperback are different. So if you can find a copy of the Treasury, it's well worth it. Uh, pages 13 through 19 are <clears throat> better known as the Hulk-Superman fight. Shooter comes up with a plausible reason for the two of them to come into conflict, which, let's be honest, is what we all wanted to see. And as a kid, this really didn't let me down. We don't get a clear winner, well, that was to be expected, really, but there are some great moments in this battle. I like that Superman was taken by surprise by how savage the Hulk is, which led to a wonderful moment where the Hulk rugby tackles Superman, which was awesome. We even get a great example of the Hulk being sneaky and luring Superman into a trap, a kindness the Hulk repays by punching him a good few miles. With puny Cape Man out of the picture, Spider-Man thinks it's all up to him, but then the Superman that comes back is a completely different guy. He's all confidence and swagger, especially if you look at his body language on page 18, botched by the colouring again in the reprints, where oddly Spider-Man's costume is a nice shade of blue. Yeah. So that's what struck me as really odd about this. Superman's looks like bad blue screen work, doesn't it? This is a Superman that just had enough of the Hulk's crap. Then we get the awesome panels of the Hulk just letting rip on Superman to absolutely no avail. Exactly how long both combatants could have kept this up is unclear. But Superman destroying the thing that kept the Hulk angry is a great little panel. And on page 20, Superman manages to calm the Hulk down. What did you think of the Hulk-Superman fight? I enjoyed it. That's pretty much it. That's all you got. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. As a kid, I never thought he'd win the fight between the two, so... Those oh, that. come on. That's all we used to ask. Wait, we asked them, but... Who'd win in a fight between Superman and Thor? Galactus and the Hulk was one of them. Yeah. 
That would actually be awesome. I thought this was great. I really did. It's only a couple of pages, but it doesn't disappoint. It's Superman versus the Hulk. How can you not want to see that? Mm. I'd, I'd read an entire issue of that. In fact, Roger Stern yep. and Steve Rude did a Superman Hulk team up. Right. Which was fantastic. We may need to cover that on a show at some point. Did they fight for the first act? Do you know? I don't remember. Well, probably it was really a team up, so they probably did. Oh yeah, one would hope so. Yeah. But it, I remember it being awesome. So we need to cover that on a future show. Uh, this page where Superman manages to calm the Hulk down also has a nice reference to the Hulk TV show. The cop calls it a Hulk out, and a good example of Superman's compassion as he explains that Banner was not responsible. Banner is merely a walk-on cameo, really. But Shooter does a good job of tying all this into the Peter Parker arc for the story. Peter goes through the issue generally feeling worthless and unappreciated by J. Jonah, by Cindy, and here by the populace who reverse Superman but couldn't give a crap about Spider-Man, who really accomplishes nothing by being here. Mm. I find it quite <coughs> funny that Superman said that Bruce Banner shouldn't be accounted for the Hulk's actions when Mark Miller would write an entire story arc about how Bruce Wayne... No, not Bruce, Bruce Wayne Banner, is responsible for that. How Bruce Banner should be responsible for the Hulk's actions. Um, well, his argument here is the Hulk shouldn't be held responsible for it because this device was contra- provoking him. Yeah. So I took it as that's what he was talking about. He found evidence that someone was controlling him. Mm. So I took it that he was telling the cop that, you know, the Hulk wasn't responsible for this. Yes, I know he's caused billions of dollars worth of property damage. Yeah. But it wasn't his fault. And I will find out who was responsible. But he's the gun fired by someone else's hand. Yeah, pretty much. The oddest thing about this page in the reprints, Superman's costume is miscoloured in panels 1, 2 and 6. But isn't. But he's correct in panel 8. Which only manages to emphasise how great Buscema's work is, as the shot of Superman in flight is absolutely gorgeous. In fact, every time Buscema drew Superman in flight... It was great. It was fantastic. Uh, page 21, the use of the parasite's powers is inconsistent throughout the issue. Mm. Here, he's weak after being freed from his underground cell, guarded by robots, despite people walking by in what seems to be close proximity. He's further away when he drains Peter, but that's explained in the dialogue. But it does beg the question, is his power on all the time? Can he turn it off and on? Is it off and onable? I thought it wasn't. I don't know, because... He's no further away from regular people than he is from Peter Parker, but the dialogue explains that Peter's inordinately powerful because mm-hmm. he's Spider-Man, and that helps him drain some enough strength for him to get away. But I thought the whole deal behind him was his power was... It, it couldn't be turned off. Yeah, that does make because sense. then why would he be so drained? Yeah, and he's also... That's why he's so miffed at the end of it, isn't he? Mm. Um... Yeah, alright, fair enough. Uh, Peter is caught by Jimmy. I presume that Jimmy being there isn't a huge coincidence, (laughs) as Jimmy will presumably be monitoring the story. But if a photographer eats with his camera and a photographer sleeps with his camera, Jimmy's a crap photographer because he doesn't have his camera with him. Unless it's in his pocket. You think? He's gone up to the digital age. Has he? Yeah. In 1981. It's Metropolis. (laughs) Um, I mean, I suppose it's not in all iterations of the Superman myth that Jimmy is a photographer. Hell, apparently he's not always a man. Well, <laughs> you're not letting that go, are you? Uh, no, I'm, it may not even be Jimmy, you may be right. I'm being pithy and funny. That's for, for humor was sake. he just the coffee boy? Yeah. <laughs> go get me a coffee. Okay, chief. Don't call me chief. Coffee. Coffee chief. Whatever. 
the ginger coffin delivery boy. Yeah, that totally worked. Or um, you. <laughs> or you. Nobody knows his real name. <laughs> Uh, page 22 I quite like the big city boy Peter Parker is smitten by small town girl Lana Lang whereas Kansas farm boy Clark Kent is smitten by city gal Lois Lane mm. and Lois's line about he's the most wonderful man in the world and he's mine all mine seemed a bit catty yeah and out of character for Lois to be honest with you uh, page 23 again Buscema's Superman flying shot is awesome I liked that Shooter set the story up so that Clark and Peter never actually meet. I can see why some people would be frustrated by that, though. Mm-hmm. Although they did meet in the first one, and they double-dated. Mm. Not with each other. <laughs> Peter took Mary Jane and Clark took Lois. Not Superman and Spidey and yeah. Wonder Woman no. and Hulk. <laughs> no. <laughs> can you imagine Superman? He rocks up with Spider-Man and goes, don't think much of yours, Spidey. <laughs> As he taps off with Wonder Woman. <laughs> Uh, page 23, I've just said that, so there's no point saying it again. Um, page 23 is wonderful, because it contrasts to a page later highlighting the differences between Metropolis and New York. New Yorkers are a lot more blasé about flying men. This panel also has an appearance, kind of, by Walt Simonson and Wheezy, a.k.a. Simonson and his wife Louise. Mm. I do wonder if that's a, a hint that Simonson inked that page. Could be. Because he is listed as one of the inkers. But then why would it be ri- uh, written in the script? Um, maybe... He inked it, it's, because... Maybe he dialogued it after the art was in. Maybe he did it Marvel method. Oh, fair enough. It's possible. I mean, that's just us guessing, isn't it? Um, the geography thing, when, it, when Superman goes to the Latvian embassy, mm. the geography thing kind of annoyed me, because not only are New York and Metropolis right next to each other now, yeah. but everyone knows everyone in the other universe. Yes. And Latveria, a fictional country, also exists and is known by the DC-verse. Well, if Latveria, as a fictional country, was going to exist anywhere, it would be in the DC Universe, which is full of fictional places. Mm. The Marvel Universe, by and large, had real places, apart from, you know, Latveria and Monster Isle and... Yeah, I'm sure the Savage things. Land. And the Savage Land and yeah. Wakanda and the Blue Area of the Moon and... Oh, yeah, Marvel was totally the world outside your window, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like very just like the DC, the Marvel version of Kandak. Yes. <laughs> and was it not just somewhere they could do a communist country but not actually give it a real name? Yeah. That's probably what it was. Redland. <laughs> that would work. Yeah. I would love that. Uh, page 24 through 28, I actually loved these pages. It's very much the midpoint confrontation between James Bond and the bad guy, where the bad guy points out that... We're not that different, Mr. Bond. You and I. And under the veneer of civility, the two of them trade barbs and try to suss each other out. It seemed a bit of a rush job that Superman figured out the parasite escaped off panel. But the confrontation with Doom is just so good. Firstly, Doom tells Superman, no need to bow. I prefer to dispense with the formalities, which beautifully plays into Doom's ego. Superman isn't going to bow before Doom. Doom knows this. But by saying this, Doom makes it all about him and takes control of the room. He then has no problem admitting what he's up to, absolute dominion over this entire planet, before attacking, which is great, because Superman shows he has his brains. By wrapping himself up in the lead-lined floor, Doom installed to keep Superman's super peepers at bay, which was set up earlier on. Mm -hmm. So it didn't actually come from nowhere. It's a great little scene, because despite all of this, after Superman has chucked the offending kryptonite into space, Doom still holds all the aces, as in the Latverian embassy, he's got diplomatic immunity. 
Yeah. I wonder if this is where they got the idea for giving the Joker diplomatic immunity in Death in the Family. Could be. I liked how Superman knew he was walking into, like, a hostile zone when he spies the um, yeah. American robot. From the minute he goes into the Latvian embassy, he's on the defensive, and he's scanning everywhere, there's X-ray vision, and he knows that the floor is lead-lined, and that the guards are robots, and so he's aware that essentially he's probably walking into a trap. Mm. But he still walks into it because, you know, he's... Next move, he's bring the trap. Yeah, exactly, Obi-Wan. <laughs> a plan I never understand. Yeah. We're going into a trap, young Anakin. So what do we do? Spring the trap. How does that in any way make sense, Obi-Wan? Let's avoid the trap. <laughs> if we know it's a trap, can we not avoid the trap? I had not thought of that, my young Padawan. Our ships have been destroyed. <laughs> no. It makes for a very boring opening half an hour. Yes, we're, we're going to just mess around with R2-D2 and have some witty banter. Is that okay with you, Anakin? <laughs> oh, I have to be moody. <laughs> um, special mention needs to be made of the panel where Superman busts loose of the lead casing surrounding his body, which is just a great piece of art. It's The camera is above Superman. I say camera, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking down upon him as he just busts free. It's very reminiscent Does of... He break loose? He does indeed break loose. Well done. Are we linking back yes. to everything we've covered so far in this one episode? Bring that, it all together. Is that what we're doing? It's all been leading to this. Look, it's a dark night over <laughs> Metropolis. We're going to get to the point where we're shoe on the minute you do know that, don't you? Oh, with the icing. Um, it's, um, He's going to go home and have the secret life of Clark Kent. Oh! Well, he does that because he goes to the Daily Bugle and tries to get a job. Yeah. There you go, secret uh, private life of Clark Kent story. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Doom slapping the parasite down. It's just brilliant. Mm. I thought that was great. It's very similar to that wife beater in action comics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, page 29. And here we see the reason I've long thought it was dumb that Superman hangs out with Perry and Jimmy and Lois, etc. Clark has an expository thought balloon that explains that Clark is in New York to draw fire away from Lois et al., who, as Superman's friends, may be targets for doom and parasites. And this is mentioned in the dialogue later on, Mm -hmm. isn't it? If everybody knows that Lois is Superman's girlfriend, and everyone knows that Perry and Jimmy are Superman's mates, why have a secret ID? Because surely they've already got a huge target painted on the back. There, and knowing whether they're real, known to Clark Kent or yeah. Superman doesn't make a difference. Because no. either way, yeah. they're, they're known to be friends of Superman. Yeah. So the secret identity makes not a blind bit of difference. Unless does he it? wants to keep himself safe. <laughs> he doesn't give an ass about everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> that quite abuses me. <laughs> um, the jumbo jet falling out of the sky, and Superman spots another doing the same thing. I poured over this comic and could not find out why two planes would just fall from the sky. Mm. Again, in so tightly plotted a book as this, I would have expected these events to not be so random. Did you did you find out why this happened? Um, an off-panel Doctor Doom, the MP? Because he says that it's happened twice. Mm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't understand why that happened twice in quick succession, that two aeroplanes were just about to crash. Yeah. And where's Thor when you need him? <laughs> oh, yeah, the D- uh, Marvel and DC can have a crossover, but with no other characters. Yeah, well, maybe they just would have crammed it up. Can you imagine Superman greeting Thor? Nice cape. <laughs> nice hurt. Um, page 29, dating the book a little bit more than the Kojak reference and the Elvis Costello reference, I suppose, although Costello's still a viable artist, despite what Michael 
keeps thinking and Kojak keeps being remade mm-hmm. badly uh, Superman deposits the jumbo jet on top of the Pan Am building Pan Am was a huge multinational airline that collapsed in 1991 Blade Runner has the same problem fair enough in that Pan Am's in Blade Runner as well which was set in 2019 <laughs> there's also a panel though where there's guys wearing a sleeveless suit Oh God! Yeah, it does, look, it does look like he's wearing a suit jacket that he's but, just ripped the sleeves yeah. off. I presume it's miscolored, and it should have been a denim jacket. You know that he's ripped the the sleeves off. Yeah, because nobody would rip the sleeves off a suit. That would just be silly, wouldn't it? Well, would have unless wearing a suit with sleeves is too mainstream. Yeah, perhaps. Nineteen eighty-one, page thirty. What is the room that Jonah is banging on and waiting for Clark? Mm-hmm. Is it a storeroom? If but so, why does he think Clark's in there? It doesn't look like a story. No. It's a desk. Yeah, it's got a desk in and a window and, and a mirror. Is it not his... By the looks of things. ...little office for the time being? Well... The guest office. He's never given Peter an office. I mean, it is possible it's like a, a guest office of some description. Um, he ducks back in, though, and disappears out the window under Gloria Grant's nose, and she's in no way suspicious. Mm. This is why Gloria is still Jonah's secretary and not a crusading reporter like Betty Brandt. <laughs> Betty Brandt would have been like, where's he gone? Mm. She would have been his lowest lane. Yeah. Wouldn't she? Which actually would have been quite funny. But I don't think Betty Brandt was in the strip at this point. I think she'd bugger off and marry Ned Leeds. Fair enough. Uh, I did adore that Shooter essentially mirrors many of the sequences from the 1978 movie. Superman prevents an aircraft from crashing. Granted, it doesn't have the president in it, but catches a few robbers and prevents a train from derailing and saves a school bus full of children, all of which he did in Superman the movie. Uh-huh. Well, that train Superman stops is Parasite. It is. It's coloured exactly the same as the Parasite, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which is... The Parasite train. <laughs> Come on, we'll take all your money. Yeah, well, again, what you've got there is a shot of him stopping a huge train, like on the cover of The Mightiest Team in the World. <laughs> that one wasn't shoe on. That was actually quite natural. Um, page 32 is another glorious panel of Buscema's Superman in flight over the curvature of the Earth, mm-hmm. which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Very um, similar to Superman 400. Very similar to Superman 400. The problem with this, in the 1996 reprint, you can't really read the white text on the black background. No. But you can read it clearly in the Treasury Edition. Mm-hmm. So go out and buy the Treasury Edition, kids. Uh, loved the bottom two panels of page 32. Jonah has been a crusader against vigilante justice for a long time, with a particular mad on for Spider-Man. He seems to tolerate Captain America, and to a lesser extent the Fantastic Four, mainly because of Reed and Ben's World War II connections, or maybe they don't have secret IDs, so having him ponder the stance he'll take on Superman is actually a great bit of characterisation. Shooter scores at the characterisation in the book. Characters may have only one scene, or only a few scenes, but he manages to give them little character beats that ring true. Granted, it seems to have been forgotten that only earlier in the issue Jonah had a poster of Superman on the wall, indicating that he thought he was one of the good guys, but we'll let that slide, should we? Yeah. We won't. Surely he should be fine with him, because he he does come off as Kal-El. Yeah, he doesn't wear a mask and isn't a vigilante, Mm. I suppose, in the way that uh, he considers Spider-Man to be a vigilante, doesn't he? Page 33, an example of the kind of subtlety completely missing from Secret Wars, which was written by the same guy. Superman flies to Latveria, and it is casually mentioned that they have bombarded him with a particle beam. This is not mentioned again until we learn why and what it did. Mm. What happened to this gym shooter? Where did this guy go? He wasn't bought out by a toy line. (laughs) 
That's probably correct, actually. Um, page 34, all of the dialogue between Doom and Parasite is hysterical. Parasite's like a petulant teen, or me, me, me! And Doom just keeps swatting him away like an irritating fly. Also like me, me, me. Yeah, pretty much. Um, at this point, newer readers are asking why Doom is putting up with this guy. Mm-hmm. But again, that's all revealed later on. Um, also on this page, it's uh, revealed that Superman not only has supervision, but also super art skills. Yes, he does. So whenever the planet has no photos and needs an artist's <laughs> rendition, they just use Clark. Well, he couldn't do that. Because Clark, having super art skills, would possibly give away his secret identity. Unless he just passed it off as during his travels in between Smallville and Metropolis. He didn't do any of that, yeah. He he did some, did he not? No. Post-crisis, he went straight from Smallville to Metropolis. He could have done some some art skills in Nanda (laughs) Parbat. He learned how to be an artist in Nanda Parbat, did he? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. An artistic monk. Unless... The, his, his drawings of those guns are just lines with little sticks coming off them. Yeah. Um, pew, pew, pew. Barney McGrew, because of the devil and grub. Um, he's recaptured the Hulk, um, supposedly, for Parasite to feed off, but he really doesn't do anything for the rest of the story, does he? Mm. There's no real reason for the Hulk to be here now, because he doesn't do anything. He is helpless, and he is mine. <laughs> says yeah, that's just it, he just... Trophy just to room. prove that he can do it. Yeah, his trophy room does the Hulk. There's Wonder Woman. <laughs> what else have you got in there? Doom. <laughs> Over there, I have Blue Beetle's head. <laughs> with a hole in it from when Maxwell Lord shot him. Oh, with Maxwell Lord's hand sawed off and still holding on to his <laughs> Over there, I have someone that Jeff Johns stabbed in the back. <laughs> Next to every single one of them is a picture of Doom holding it. <laughs> Messi saying, Doom captured this during his travels too. <laughs> Nanda Parbat! <laughs> oh dear God. Page 35 and 36. The signature of authenticity by Doom. <laughs> and he sells it on Doom Bay. <laughs> on the inter-Doom. eBay.Doom. <laughs> Do you think his email address is doom at latveria.com? <laughs> dot Doom. <laughs> Oh, God. Page 35 and 36, more proof, if proof were needed, that Steve Lombard is a jerk. Mm. I've said it once before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, although Spider-Man getting his own back on him with the old sticky chur gag he used to pull on Jonah all the time, back in the day, raised a genuine smile mm. when I was reading this, even though I've read this 403 times. Yeah. I still found that funny. I found it hilarious when... I was I worked this out myself, actually. Oh, go on, then. What's funny than Spidey leaving webbing on Lombard's chur? Mm. Well, he needs to go in 40, on her in 45 minutes, and the webbing dissolves in 60. Exactly. But then, in the next panel, it was already it was pointed out to me. Yeah. Well, it was very clever, though. Very good. Yeah. I liked that. Uh, I don't know why, upon arriving back at his apartment and hearing the phone ring, Spider-Man would think it was Murray Jane calling him at this apartment in Metropolis <laughs> that she doesn't know he's at, and given up that they broke up after he asked her to marry him and she said no, and then she only appeared sporadically after that and didn't appear at all in the main Amazing Spider-Man title between Amazing Spider-Man 193 and 238... Probably because you need to shoehorn another character in there. Yeah, I mean, they just mentioned... But he does actually mention Deb Whitman. Mm. But why would anyone who lives in New York, a bus ride away, remember, <laughs> be phoning Peter for a date when he's in Metropolis? Maybe that's it, it's just a bus ride away. 
You could probably swing though quicker. Yeah. Instead well, of maybe the boss. That's like the mobile phone of this year. What, just the phone ringing in his apartment? Yeah. He puts it in his bag and carries it with him. That would be very big to carry with him. So were mobile phones around this time? That's true. Did he have mobile phones in 1981? No, I didn't. That was the late 80s, the mobile phone, wasn't it? Still pretty big. Big as a brick. Heavy as a brick. And it only had battery life for about 20 minutes. Well, they would have, because they did carry them around. Spies and, like, the Cold War had them in the suitcases. Did they? Well, I I think so. (laughs) I'm sure it was in the Brad Brubeck comic. They did did in Metal Gear, so, you know. Oh, so it must be true. It's very historically accurate. Is it? It is. Okay. Those giant robots certainly went around. Yes, the Cold I War. remember those giant robots in the Cold War. <laughs> I don't remember the Cold War, to be honest with you. Uh, page 37. To be fair to the cops, it really does look like Spider-Man knocks the cop off the roof. Well, the scene made, made Spidey look really, really bad. Yes. Because rather was. than just up the criminal, he makes a scene in front of the cops like a kid with ADHD and then lets him get away. Yeah. Hey, look at me, it's Spider-Man. it does look like he does knock the cop off the roof. Yeah. So Spider-Man comes out of this really poorly. No wonder he wanted the hell out of Metropolis. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's wanted for attempted murder. It's like, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll on page 38, panel 4, is really funny. Uh, Mobile Command 2, this is Chopper 670. We've lost sight of him. The guy takes 40-foot jumps and runs down sheer walls. Better put out an APB on Spider-Man. What do you mean, how are we sure it's Spider-Man? <laughs> well, I thought it was a really funny gag. Mm. Who else is it going to be? Nutter? <laughs> Could have been Blue Beetle? Deadpool. Or Deadpool, <laughs> who has just journeyed over to the uh, to the Marvel-DC Universe crossover again. Teams up with Ambush Bug. Oh, God. <laughs> the world couldn't take that much awesome. You'll never it? be as rad. As ambush book and uh, Deadpool. No, that's if if that existed, we would cover it on the show. Yes, they're so rad. They have a Nintendo Power Glove. I'll take your word for it. The eighties, Carl. They want the phrase back. Page 39, it's a staggering coincidence that Spider-Man is thinking about the construction site in New York where his Spider-Sense went off at the beginning of the story, just as he swings over a construction site that causes his Spider-Sense to go off. Mm. It's almost as though it was like this was scripted. It is, isn't it? I mean, especially with a fewer rearranged word balloons, you could make this be less of a coincidence. Mm. You have Spider-Man swinging over the construction site, and then you have his Spider-Sense tingle, and then you have him muse that the last time this happened, he was over a construction site, and you're away. Mm-hmm. But I did like the call back to the beginning of the issue, where again, as I mentioned before, Spidey puts it all together himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spidey references Star Wars and notes that the lab looks like they could be filming the next Star Wars movie here. When this was written, we were waiting for Return of the Jedi. Now we're waiting for Episode 7. Some pop culture references come back around, don't they? Elvis Costello starring in Star, uh, Star Wars Episode 7. Yeah, I would be a good play. <laughs> I will have to give some thought to that. Uh, page 40, Wonder Woman. I know Spider-Man's a young man here, uh, around 22-ish, but he's a real horn dog in this story, (laughs) isn't he? This comic, he says there's five women in it, not counting Aunt May, who doesn't actually appear. And he hits on them all. There's Cindy, Wonder Woman, Lana, Lois, and Sheila, the girl Steve Lombard was with, and Peter hits on three of the five. Mm -hmm. He even tries to get on with Wonder Woman, which, you know, fair play to the man. Well, maybe he thinks, you know, he's... Out of town, he's in Metropolis now. Yeah. He can just swing around, yell, and get your <laughs> out. I don't say that to Wonder Woman, to be honest with you. Uh, 
I love spotting what looks like production snafus or alterations. We've mentioned these a couple of times before, yes. where word balloons look like they were tacked on later. Panel 5 of this page, the caption lettering in Doom's first speech balloon, has lettering that doesn't match the rest of the book. You see, though. Mm. Still, my soldiers cannot subdue her. Those blundering dolts? Bah! Meanwhile, in Omega 1 in Manhattan... I wonder what they originally said. No idea. Because that looks like it was changed. Wonder Woman is kicking some solid ass. She's not in Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> I wasn't referencing that. I was just saying she's kicking some ass. She and is? Parasite's like, yeah, she can kick my ass. Oh, Parasite, you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Parasite teases Doom. <laughs> and now your entire grandiose secret scheme is coming undone before your eyes. And Doom's like, silence! <laughs> well, that, that's how they mock each other. They're like, throw death bots at each other. Throw barbs at each other. <laughs> Oh dear me. Uh, page 40, Spider-Man and Wonder Woman both reference each other as if they know each other. They just haven't met prior for this. Of course they do, you just live around the corner from each other. Yeah, but I'll be honest, I prefer this than in the Superman FF team up where they have some tedious bollocks about different realities. Mm. I'd rather just get on with the story. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you don't care about alternate realities, you're yeah. just like, cool. Yeah, I'm just like, Superman's meeting Spider-Man and he's just fighting the Hulk! <laughs> awesome! What do you mean? This is an alternate reality and the Marvel Universe can't coexist. I don't care! Just skip forward these pages. Yeah, boring, boring, boring. Oh, Hulk smash. Excellent. Doom Lex this. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man's travelled from one side of the galaxy to another, seen a lot of strange things, yet magic lassoes are apparently where he draws the line. Mm-hmm. His suspension of disbelief <laughs> goes out the window when somebody has a magic lasso. Yeah. He's perfectly happy to, to accept robots. Yep. And outer space bases and blue areas of the moon and Thanos. He has no problem with any of that. Nope. But magic lassoes, that's too much for him. Maybe it was a slide dig up DC. No, it's, 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 I didn't get it as that. I was just, you're not going to let you hog tie me with that magic lasso. What am I saying? I don't believe in magic lassoes. What, do you not believe in men that can fly either? You see, if he doesn't believe in them hard enough, it won't be though. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll go with that. That's a good no-prize explanation. Uh, I'll be honest, whilst Wonder Woman's cool and all, she really serves no function in this story. Unlike the Hulk, who has a point within the narrative, which was to free the parasite, as comic fans, we've always wanted to see the Hulk fight Superman. So that reason alone makes it worth his while being here. Wonder Woman's just kind of here. I've never really longed to see Spider-Man fight her or hit on her, and she really serves no function to the plot. It's essentially, she just disappears after this, never really contributing anything else. I did wonder if DC said they needed to have a big-name guest star if the Hulk was going to appear, and she was just kind of shoehorned her in. Well, it was probably that, yeah. I mean, they needed to keep it even. Like yeah. we've said in crossovers like this before, where they can't show one more cooler than the other. Yeah, although you can argue in this, Spider-Man doesn't come off very well. He comes across yeah. a bit mopey, a bit sad, very self-doubting, and he nearly causes the death of a policeman. Yeah. Whereas Superman's all confident and arrogant and swaggery, mm. as you would want from him. So DC come off better anyway. Yeah, despite the fact this was produced by Marvel. Yeah. So, you know, they really really did have an inferiority complex, didn't they? Uh, page 42, Spider-Man does have some genuinely funny dialogue throughout the entire book. And Shooter does a great job of capturing his flippant, take-nothing-seriously attitude while still managing to make Peter Parker a little self-pitying, but crucially without making him a whiner. It's a delicate balancing act that Shooter pulls off admirably. Um, as we've already been discussing, apparently Doctor Doom has built a subway train from New York to Metropolis. 
underground mm-hmm. that no one heard him do. So, A, Metropolis in New York can't be that far away. Mm-hmm. And B, let's just ponder that point again. He's built an entire subway and no one heard him do it. Well, all those meetings he went to. <laughs> he, Doctor Doom's just awesome, isn't he? Yeah. Doctor Doom's the hero of the story. He is. Just for being able to pull off all this construction. In fact, if we trusted Doctor Doom with all our construction sites, he would... We we would be we would have much better towns and cities. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. No potholes. No. Trains would be oh, on time. Do you think Blackberry has potholes in the <laughs> roads? I say the nay. Huh? Your trains would be on time. Yeah, because you can build one overnight. Apparently. Yeah. You know, you need a new train. Doom okay. makes this happen. Doom for the people. <laughs> doom for doom. For the doom by the doom. <laughs> We always have fun when Doom's in a story. We do. Doctor Doom's great, though. (laughs) I love Doctor Doom in this story. He's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Page 43 through 44, the story dips its toes into darkness on this page. With the Parasite's conversation with Doom about how he wants Wonder Woman. Doom covers by saying he didn't know Parasite had romantic inclinations (laughs) towards her. When it's quite clear romance is very far from his mind. But just the implication of this in a Superman-Spider-Man crossover is very daring and very quite delicately handled. It does also further the characters. For the first time we see Parasite as rather pitiable. And even Doom seems to feel some measure of sorrow for the man. What I did like was that Doom had no time whatsoever for it. He's not interested in defiling women, or women at all. All Doom craves is power. Which is what Parasite craves, because draining power is all he has left. I thought this was a very nice way to compare both men, and gave them some character without ever forgetting that they are both the bad guys. We then get on page 44 through 45 a huge info dump where Doom outlines the extent of his plan. This actually worked because unlike other bad guy monologues, Doom has reason to be telling all of this to Parasite. The invisibility screen he's invented to stop Superman from seeing what's going on is rather woolly. And the science is a bit off. What exactly is peculiar radiation? Which is what Doom says he's, he's been using. I've been using a form of peculiar radiation. Well, it's radiation that makes you go, hmm, <laughs> ah. Radiation that makes you think. <laughs> oh, fair enough. But Shooter does a good job of upping the stakes. And he's not finished. Mm. He's not finished upping this to the max. Shooter also plays Spider-Man's feelings of inadequacy into the plot in an organic way. Compared to the Hulk, Wonder Woman and Superman, Spider-Man is punching above his weight, but the fact that he rises to the challenge and arguably saves the day is what makes him such a great character. Makes up for almost killing that cop. Almost. (laughs) Page 46. Spider-Man explains the plot to Superman, who already had it all figured out. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. This goes into what I was saying earlier on. Superman is one step ahead of everyone else. Super smart. Throughout the entire story. Again, uh, Superman's costume is miscoloured, but Spider-Man's isn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just a contrast the two. Uh, maybe it's just Marvel going, we're going to mess you up. <laughs> That's just my... my We've realised that uh, our characters come off worse than yours, so we're going to miscolour yours. Take yeah. that, DC. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that Spider-Man says, Geronimo! And then thinks, I'm going to have to think of a glitzier battle cry. <laughs> and like, Geronimo works for the Doctor. Mm. So I don't see what's wrong with him. <laughs> Spidey assemble. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't work at all. Um... That would work for, like, G-Force. 
Because they all came together to make the phoenix, didn't they? Yeah. Down, Uh, down and below. Does that work? Yeah, that works. Going underground, going underground. Page 47, Superman making short work of Doom's crew is awesome, but of course Doom is ready. And six, a robot on Superman. Doom's dialogue is great here. So arrogant, so egocentric. Just so Doom. What is it that possessed self-styled heroes to endlessly spout moronic Phillips and stupid homilies? This is not a party alien. It is, in fact, war. The diversion stage by my soldiers served its purpose, and now my true offensive begins. What? A robot? No ordinary robot, Superman, I assure you. It is constructed of an alloy nearly as indestructible as adamantium, and that you will find that its strength matches your own. For this is the source of its might, a massive fusion reactor. See how its blinding brilliance penetrates this viewport, though it is made of black quartz twenty feet thick. This is the fire that burns in the stars, the primary power of the universe, a force to be feared even by the legendary Superman. Only doom could harness such a power. Only doom would dare. He's great, isn't he? I <laughs> love Doctor Doom. <laughs> if you mind, just goes, all right, you've told me it's weakness now. See, I have done my research with my super smart brain. And... <laughs> uh, page 48, we get another great line from Spider-Man. He swoops down and uh, kicks Parasite in the face, saying, my aunt always told me to wipe my feet. Hope you don't mind if I use your face. Which I thought was funny. I genuinely laughed at an awful lot of Spider-Man's dialogue in there. I genuinely did find it funny. Of course, this doesn't go well, and Parasite now has Spider-Man's abilities. I presume Parasite continues to drain his abilities, given that Spider-Man gets steadily weaker over the next few pages. Mm. Which seemed a bit woolly to me. Because if he can do all that, he seems really close to Superman, though. Why does he need to touch Superman? Yeah. When he's able to drain Spider-Man by just being near him. Like he did before with yeah. Peter, yeah. Now, I get that Spider-Man touched him there. Yeah. Which is fine. So he should have some modicum of spider power. Mm-hmm. And you can't even go with the argument that he needs them to touch him first. Yeah. Because he did it with Peter. Before. Because all he needs to do here, yeah, is get into proximity and drain it. But he's closer to Superman, though, yet it doesn't seem to be draining him. Mm. This is what I meant about Parasite's power set being a bit um, <coughs> inconsistent Off. throughout the issue. Uh, page 49, good use of foreshadowing. Shooter sets up Parasite learning about spider sense mm-hmm. and what it's used for, which is, he pays off later, which I thought was quite clever. And page 50, just like how he set up the particle beam earlier, he pays it off here. The particle beam has put dust over Superman's body that when shot with kryptonite powder, isn't it? It's kryptonite powder. The dust that he was shot with earlier on causes the powder to stick to it, meaning the kryptonite dust clings to Superman's body. Which I thought was, uh, again, quite clever. Page 51, Superman's out cold due to the kryptonite dust covering his body. Why is it not killing him? Um, Or is it killing him very, very slowly? Could be. But he's completely covered with it. So it couldn't be because of uh, how small the kryptonite is. Yeah. Because essentially he's wearing a um, kryptonite onesie. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) Page 51, again, Parasite gets a hold of Spider-Man. Why do you not just drain and kill him? I mean, Spider-Man does ask the same question when he wakes up, which gives the writer a partial pass. Mm. But it doesn't answer the question. I mean, Spider-Man theorises that maybe Doom wants to experiment on me later. And then he's like, oh, that'll be fun. So, eh. 
Because Spider-Man is the weak link in the chain, isn't he? He's the contingency Doom didn't plan for. Yeah. He planned for Superman. He deliberately lured Hulk and Wonder Woman here. He didn't plan on Spider-Man. Mm. Which is obviously what causes his downfall. Page 52, finally, Doom reveals why he kept Parasite around. The fusion reactor is unstable, and Doom has worked out that if Parasite drains three powerful people's powers, and is then channeled through the innovator he has designed, he can use the Parasite's remains to power the reactor. Leaving Superman, Wonder Woman, the Hulk, and Parasite dead is a lucky byproduct of his plan, which Shooter reveals here is nothing less than universal domination. Doom thinks big, I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. The only fly in the ointment is Spider-Man. Which, as we've mentioned, is a contingency Doom did not anticipate or plan for. And Parasite having spider sense mm-hmm. buggers up the entire plan. So Doom isn't as smart as he thinks he is? He never is, though, is he? No. He's never as smart as he thinks he is. Uh, page 55, I always thought how Spider-Man saves Superman was really quite clever when I was a kid, and I still do. Spider-Man uses his brain to get them out of the predicament they are in which is another reason why the character is awesome he spins his web over Superman and then slowly pulls it back removing the kryptonite dust I do like that he mentions that doing this is practically breaking his wrist Mm. which I thought was quite funny Superman's also awesome on the next page I love the way he casually assaults Doom having finally had enough of all this diplomatic immunity nonsense and just rips his glove off figuring Doom must be protected against Parasite's power. He then takes the Parasite out with one punch. Come on, that was awesome. Doesn't make you think why I didn't do this before, though. Uh, it does, but he was a bit busy with that robot. Yeah. Wasn't he? So, I thought that was brilliant. One punch. Mm. Take that, Guy Gardner. Uh, page 57 through 58, again. The tension is palpable, and Superman desperately holds the fusion reactor together despite it being like red sun radiation. And Spider-Man battles through his self-doubt and stops the build-up. The whole scene is leavened with a great humorous beat where Doctor Doom can't escape because Spider-Man sabotaged his escape vehicle. Exactly when Spider-Man did this is alluded to, but it's not actually explained why Spider-Man would just randomly sabotage a rocket. When he was listening to them on the way out, he thought this this could come in handy at one point. What, sabotaging the rocket? Yeah. Deus Ex. Alright, fair enough. Um, it all ends, however, with the push of a lever. Mm-hmm. Which was a little bit anticlimactic, wasn't it? Because it's not even a big lever. No. Or a big red button. It's a little lever. It's a tiny little lever. Flick the wrist. Yes, and then it's done. Mm-hmm. Which was, yes, a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, page 59, I love that Doom gets away. <laughs> And that even he will struggle to recover from this. And then page 60 through 61, sadly, Peter and Clark never actually meet in the story. Mm. Which just has a nice level of irony to it. Mm-hmm. Superman only ever meets Spider-Man. It does make you question that Superman can't be all that fast if Doom beat him. His ro- he was on his rocket jets. That are faster than Superman. No, but Superman was, was, was busy with the nuclear reactor. <laughs> Doom was like... Right, I'm going to get out of here now. I'm going to casually amble home, but pick up a Starbucks, maybe a Big Mac, ka and then when I'm on Latverian soil, ha-ha, I am untouchable. So Superman's not faster than rocket boots? Apparently not, no. Okay. Rocket boots that, that fail on him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're not, they must have been damaged when I lost my gauntlet. How does ripping your glove off affect your shoes? Um... 
Well, the, the wire is circuited all around him. Is it? Is it all fundamentally interconnected? Yeah. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, filtration system when he goes to the toilet, stuff like that. Fair enough. Uh, and the story ends with everyone back where they should be. Peter returns to New York, where he learns that there's no place like home. Thanks, Dorothy. And uh, Clark returns to Metropolis, where he just gets his job back. Because mm-hmm. that's the way of things. Uh, the Treasury Edition has a piece of art on the back cover of Superman taking on the Hulk and Wonder Woman vs. Spider-Man that I don't think's ever been reprinted. There was a full-page DC where the Action Keeps Coming ad and a Marvel Comics' Power ad. The UK reprint had different adverts, obviously. In addition to the Marvel Comics Means Power and a DC ad for UK reprints, there was an ad for the Escape from New York Poster magazine and a For Your Eyes Only Quartz watch. Uh, the 1995 reprint has the origin sequence on the back inside cover and the Buscema sketch cover on the back cover. There's a two-page ad for DC vs. Marvel Comics and the then-current miniseries, which led to the Amalgam universe. Well, Spider-Man did again meet Superman briefly, but it was Ben Riley, so it doesn't count. <laughs> um, I thought this was absolutely top flight. I really did. I mentioned in the preamble, I think this was better than the first one. And before embarking on the read-through for this show, I felt that maybe there was some element of nostalgia at play in that estimation. This was the first one I read. I had no idea there had even been a previous meeting between Superman and Spider-Man when I first read it. And there was a feeling that maybe it wasn't as good, especially with the evisceration that we gave Jim Shooter's Secret Wars series. However, I read both in deciding which one to do, and I really do think this one holds up better than the first one. In back issue 60, writer Jerry Conway mentions that were he to script the exact same plot today, the dialogue in Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man would be substantially different. And it's true the melodramatic speech patterns in that book do unfortunately date it. Granted, that's all part of the fun of older comics, embracing the goofy as part of the overall package. But in rereading this, I was surprised by how well it held up. First of all, the story is massive. Doom isn't just taking over New York or Metropolis. He's not even world domination he's after. It's the subjugation of the entire universe. That's high stakes and worthy of a team-up between the greatest heroes at both companies. Jim Shooter nails the tone and feel of the book right from the get-go. There's a playful element to the story and even some postmodern humour, such as the reason Doom talks to himself all the time. But the story goes dark in places, parasites lusting over Wonder Woman, for example, and Shooter keeps building on every story twist, making it bigger at every opportunity. Even the dialogue, of which there is a metric ton, is often wonderfully underplayed, like Shooter had watched the first Superman movie and realised that's how you write for Superman, with even Doom, whilst wonderfully over the top, never being ridiculous. This Jim Shooter was excellent, and I wonder what happened between here and Secret Wars. Likewise, the art is wonderful. Again, in back issue 60, John Buscema said he hated this job. He hated drawing superheroes. He hated drawing Superman. But Buscema's Superman, despite only having one facial expression, is gorgeous. His Spider-Man, by contrast, looks a little off to me, but neither Buscema or Inca Joe Sinnott are well known for their Spider-Man work. In every other respect, this looks as good now as it did back in the day, and more importantly, reads as good now as it did then. Is it dense? By God, yes. And there are elements of plot mentioned in the dialogue so subtly you could miss them. Absolutely. But in this era of people complaining when a comic, God forbid, actually makes them read more than five word balloons on a page, this was an unalloyed delight. What did you think of the final comic that we're covering on Happy Birthday, Superman? I enjoyed it, even though it's the type of woolly storytelling I'm not fond of. See, I didn't think this one was woolly. 
I think this one was really tightly plotted. Mm. I like that he sets stuff up and pays them off, but he doesn't make it obvious when he sets stuff up what he's doing. He doesn't signpost what he's setting up. Yeah. I thought this gym shooter was fantastic. I enjoyed it just because of Doom, really. Doom's brilliant. It should have been actually should have been called DC and Marvel present Doom, Doom, <laughs> and Parasite, featuring the murderous menace of Doctor Doom and Doctor Doom. <laughs> Because the parasite's just not a murderous or a menace. No. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I'm glad we picked that. Mm-hmm. Because it was great. Sources this week was back issue number 60. And thanks to Scott Garner for him up with a copy of that. Amazing Spider-Man, the official index of the Marvel Universe, came in useful. Ab did www.treasurycomics.com. And as usual, www.dcindexes.com came in useful for finding out stuff like release dates. It really is a wonderful site. www.jimshooter.com was also useful for the behind-the-scenes gubbins. Granted, most of it's from Shooter's perspective, so there's always your truth, the truth, and the stuff that's in the middle. And that about wraps it up for Happy Birthday, Superman. What a long, strange trek it's been. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. We hope you did too. Next week, we go back to being a Batman podcast. Yes, we do. As we wrap up um, the Knight's storyline, having done Nightfall, Knight's Quest, Knight's End, Prodigal, we're going to finish off with, what's it called? Troika. Yeah. That's what it's called. Lost my train of thought for a minute there. We hope you will join us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously all music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show which is a source of much consternation new episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and Comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics